0: Kelly, welcome to The Forest of Symbols. Yeah,
1: man, thank you for having me.
0: It's quite an honor. Um yeah, so um thanks for doing this and also just being uh generous with uh, sending me a free book and mm-hmm. putting your work out there. Um bradkellyesque.com. I've been looking through that uh this yeah. week, been listening to uh, Art of Darkness, getting caught up on that. So uh thanks for putting all that stuff out there
1: oh yeah i appreciate i appreciate you digging in man it's uh it's it's pretty exciting the art of darkness stuff has been has been a blast lately so um i'm pretty excited about that at the moment but um yeah thanks for checking out the website i, I kind of have a lot of free stuff on there uh you know just time wise if you were to read everything on there it's getting to the point where it's almost a book in and of itself so you do um, um... yeah well, so I, I read through the tarot pieces, and
0: uh, unfortunately, I didn't get uh, time to get to the short stories. But you got quite a few on there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to get to those
1: um, when I am able to do that. But I love sure. I love the tarot pieces as well. Great, great. I appreciate that. And coming from uh, coming from a, uh, I mean, coming from a guy who clearly thinks symbolically and thinks deeply about uh matters that i think the tarot touches on that that means a lot um you know i've been studying the tarot for a while and just within the last year decided like you know i've kind of got some ideas about this and it makes me feel a certain way and and as a writer you know whenever those things line up it's like oh i gotta start doing something so i've been kind of cranking those out and i'm eventually gonna do a little essay on you know every card in in the deck so um it's gonna be a labor of love over the next several years. I imagine. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. yeah I was not going to ask you about that. Whether like what the, so
0: do you, um, do you draw the cards at random? Do you have a reason for why you've done them in the order that you've done them or what?
1: Yeah. So I have a, um, I have a spread that's personal for me that I do not on any kind of schedule, but maybe, Every season is a good approximation. Every three or four months, I, I, I do—I give myself a reading and and take notes on it and try to meditate on it, you know, as often as possible. And so, when I do the um, when I do the the essays, whatever we want to call them, it's it's usually a card from that spread, um, you know. In order to in order to cover all of my bases, eventually I'll probably have to not do that because, uh, like a lot of people who have interacted with the tarot, I don't seem to get all 78 cards that show up in the spread it seems like every spread i do for myself i am, is drawing from a subset of like 30 you know it, <laughs> i have cards that i don't think have ever shown up in a spread i've done for myself so um right kind of part of the mystery a little bit um so eventually i have to spread beyond that um and uh yeah so i kind of just pick a card from that spread that's that's jumping out at me at the moment okay um, interesting
0: yeah yeah And do you, uh, like, that's a great book idea. Are you going to
1: try to do a book out of it or? Yeah, yeah, I would like to. Um, I I think, you know, we'll see because it's going to take several years um, and I'm anticipating I'm going to have another novel finished by then. I'm hoping that I can, uh, you know, maybe publish it traditionally in some way. I'm kind of strategizing now to turn the, the tarot essays into a column someplace off my site, um, I haven't made much progress there yet, but I'm, I'm kind of angling, I'm running a couple angles to see if I can make that happen. Um, so yeah, the idea would be to put it all together in a book and they're kind of the appropriate length to, for all of the cards to be in one volume and it, to not be, you know, uh, 700 pages, but more in the 400, 300 to 400 page range. So right. yeah, I think it would be, I think it would be appropriate. That's cool. Yeah. You
0: know, uh, it's it's interesting what reading through those, um, they're kind of I, I've just been thinking of them as as pieces because mm-hmm. I guess essays would be uh, one way to think about it,
1: but it's not really like a formal essay or yeah, in, in any I'm sense. I'm definitely skeptical of calling it an essay myself, and have tried to search for the right term and maybe pieces is the best because yeah it's it's they don't you're right they don't quite fit an essay um they have memoirish elements but I wouldn't call them a memoir um exactly um it's more like this is a part of trying to explain some aspect of it through an aspect of my life sort of thing right Um, yeah and uh it's funny the what those are like
0: is actually a little bit like what my initial idea for the forest of symbols podcast was going to be. Oh, really? Which is that I would pick a one symbol, you know, the cross or the spiral or mm-hmm. the heart or something like that. And I would do kind of like a free ranging Fantasia, like essay um, on that. And they would be kind of shorter. Mm-hmm. But when I started I decided to do some research (laughs) and then I was like, I I have to include all of this. (laughs) And so they sort of spiraled out into this, you know, these, these very long uh, whatever these episodes
1: are in fact. (laughs) Yeah. Well, they're great. And I mean, you're, you're making some amazing unbelievable lateral connections between things that, that I, I love, you know, these um, and, and you can, sort of maybe see me attempting that in the in the tarot pieces where it's like well this is kind of like this you know and you're explaining the two concepts yep. you're mutually explaining the two concepts sort of by the what's suspended between them so yeah i think but you're right like you can get this is true of any sort of creative project i feel like the the research can um the research can take off and start to have a life of its own for sure you know, I had a great writing teacher once when I was I was trying to write a historical fiction piece. And was, he had he had written a historical fic, piece of fiction um, or piece of historical fiction. And I asked him about research. Like, how do I how do I go about researching this thing? It's set on a boat in the 1700s. Like, I don't really know that world. And he said, oh, just write it and then research it afterward right it's like well what do you mean by that it's like if you start researching it now you'll spend the next 10 years researching it and 90 percent of it you won't even need just figure out what you want to look like and then go and use the use the research as like a fact check almost right yeah yeah maybe i'll just start making stuff up at a certain point (laughs) and then pretend that i researched it (laughs) well yeah they'll be careful about that too, I guess, but, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you do such a great job. I mean, I feel like you just keep, uh, refining that approach. It's, it's different than anything else out there that I've come across. So it's awesome. Um,
0: so you, uh, you have an MFA, is that right? That's correct. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I've got a master's of fine arts from, uh, the university of Texas, um, from the Michener center there. You're originally from Detroit. I am from Detroit originally. Yeah, and, and and back in the Detroit area as well, but I had a uh, I had quite some uh, I had quite some peregrinations leaving here and then coming back. So I've been back here for I guess 4 years now, but okay. Lived in Texas and lived in Idaho and lived in Colorado and lived in New York, and not New York City, but uh upstate New York and um and some shorter stays in other places in between. So yeah.
0: And so uh how do you feel about that uh, that experience, uh, as far as the the education and, and what you're currently doing with your writing?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's a, it's a mixed it's mixed. So one thing is you get into a an MFA program, and I don't want to toot my horn too much, but the context here is important. Is the, the Michener is a very difficult program to get into. Um, actually probably the most difficult program to get into. Um, And it's, you know, quite prestigious on that account. And, you know, you're exposed to, you know, arguably the best MFA program in the country. And a lot of people have a lot of success coming out of there. So, you know, um, I, every year or two, I will walk through a Barnes and Noble, and I'll be like, Oh, yeah, cool. His book's out. That's awesome.
2: <laughs> right? Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, so, um, and, you know, it will be some guy who was a year behind me or a year ahead or, you know, whatever. Um, and that's always a, that's always a little, um, I'm, you know, happy for them, but uh, that didn't quite happen for me. And so so there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of bittersweetness to that. The educational experience is phenomenal. Um, being left to your own devices, having the time and and basically, you know, especially as a young writer, when there maybe is some uncertainty, having a moment where someone tells you, you know, you've got enough potential to do this, that we want you to do that and nothing else for a while. Right. That is a really encouraging, there there couldn't be anything more encouraging than that, really. So from that standpoint, it's fantastic. And then you get exposed to, you know, I didn't know many other writers before I went into an MFA program. I'd gotten an English degree um, and knew a couple of other writers through that. But, you know, sitting around a, at the bar with six other people who are doing something comparable to you, that was a brand new experience to me. So that was pretty amazing. And then, you know, getting to meet um, and get to know some uh, some literary heroes. You know, I got to meet Dennis Johnson, um, got to meet George Saunders, uh Jonathan Franson briefly got to work with Alan Greganis a little bit. Um, and, you know, for people who are reading contemporary fiction, these are these are, you know, names you'll probably know. And if oh, not, yes. you should check out all, all of those people. <laughs> right? Um, uh, yeah, that, so That's that really interesting.
0: I, I so I have a little list of writers I was going to ask you about. I was kind of like editing it earlier, like, yeah. uh, I don't know. But yeah. uh, I had Dennis Johnson on there and I then yeah. I took him off. Oh, Dennis Johnson's like, I don't know. I don't know why, (laughs) (laughs) why you took him off or why you put him on. (laughs) Yeah. Either to be honest. Um, so, but I, I'm a fan. So,
1: uh, tell me what he was like. Well, he was, he was a, um, gosh, how to describe this. He's recently passed as well. And so, Mm -hmm. um, not that that changes things necessarily, but I guess it makes me think a little bit differently of him. I was already a fan before I met him and, uh, out of all of the writers who came through and we would have multiple a semester, um, either for a, a, a seminar or two, or for a semester, if we were lucky, um, he was the, he was the closest of them all to a saint. I think, um, he was just completely, he was completely sweet, um, uh, and thoughtful and, um, you could tell there was a sort of a genius behind everything, you know, behind, he, he, it wasn't like he was trying to say these profound things. They sort of bubbled to the surface occasionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, I remember that he cried a lot, um, which <laughs> which to me at the time, I didn't quite know what to make of, but but since then I've kind of realized that like, uh, there's a concept in, in oh, I don't even know where I've come, I came across it, uh, you know, in some sort of Christian mysticism of the gift of tears. Um, He was just, he had just been rubbed so raw through his life experience, um, through, I think, the, as deep as he went in writing, um, you know, the successes and the failures and the people he'd met and everything that he'd been through, that he was just like a raw nerve to the world. Um, And he told us one thing that he told us that that relates to this was he was like, you've got to metaphorically write naked. Like you don't want to be getting in the way of yourself. You don't want to be thinking, worrying about what people think of you necessarily. There's a time to be concerned about what does the audience think of this or whatever. But when you're actually doing it, this is sort of a you naked against the page sort of thing. And that's always always stuck with me. But he was just an, he was just an amazing guy. I, I um, yeah, meeting get, getting to meet him was, was hugely important to me just, uh, in terms of encouragement and, and, uh, uh, seeing seeing a guy who had had success and how he was that he wasn't an ego. You know, you hear about like meeting your heroes and it, ruining that, that was not the case with him whatsoever. So. See, that's that was, really, that's
0: really yeah. interesting to hear. So, uh, the, the invocation of Jesus and Jesus's son is not at least not completely ironic then.
1: No, I don't, I don't think so. I think, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I don't know that he himself would have called himself a Christian necessarily, but he was, he was, he was a very spiritual guy for a, you know, for a masculine kind of old school sort of, um, probably previously jaded but no longer jaded kind of guy um yeah i don't think the jesus's son titles uh, was uh ironic at all i think i think he was i think he was trying to say something like without going deep into any of the stories i think he was trying to say something like i think he was trying to remind us that jesus hung out with the pimps and prostitutes the something about like you know finding god by looking low enough right? something like that so You know,
0: I sort of consider myself a failed fiction writer, um, (laughs) in a way, but, uh, you know, if, uh, if I had to say what the hardest thing about writing is, Mm -hmm. is that thing of writing naked and being like totally honest and not caring what anybody thinks. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I, you know, I can, I sort of wrap myself up in all these like facts and, you know, historical things that I'm researching. But, you know, I, I try to like break through that, you know, at some point. But I would definitely say that that's like a test that is really difficult to pass.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. And I think I probably fail it pretty often. Um, I would say that when I don't fail, that is when I think the best stuff comes out. <laughs> yeah and it's interesting so I, I put out this book um house of sleep I guess earlier this year but it had been done it had already been completed for a year so it's it's kind of old for me um in a way um though it's one of the only things I I read back and I still kind of like um but I've been sort of sharing it with with uh some extended family lately um and 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 I love my extended family uh but none of them are really uh most of these people don't read books at all right Mm -hmm. and so it's very strange to kind of lay this book on them (laughs) right and be like this is what I spent you know hours a day for years uh coming up with (laughs) yeah um and and, you know I haven't had it it's not that it's caused any complications or weirdnesses but I can tell that like they're you know after I see them after they've read a bit there's a little bit of uh and maybe seeing me in a different light after that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so, it's been kind of fun actually. It's, it's sort of, I'd finally come around to just being fine with that, I guess. So, it took right. a while though. Uh,
0: so, do you, um, I don't know, I had this question about influences, but uh, while we're on the, the MFA thing and, and mm-hmm. some of the writers that you've um, you know been able to work with, do you consider? any of the people that you've actually met to be like
1: definite influences on your work? I would say Dennis Johnson is okay. the biggest one. Yeah. And I don't even know if that necessarily comes across on the page. I mean, um, he has, a you know, with Dennis Johnson, there's a, there's a means by which he accomplishes mood um, that I think I, I tried to um, I've tried to keep, in the front of my mind. Um, there's, and I mean, I don't know if you've read tree of smoke. Um, I actually have not read that yet. Yeah. Tree of smoke is, is, is probably, it is his masterpiece I would say. And it's, it's, um, it's the most effective, I don't know what the term is, what I would call a pastiche novel where it's just like, here's a scene and then here's another scene and then here's Mm -hmm. another scene. And it's kind of wandering around in time and space. Um, it's one of the most effective books I've ever read at doing that. And so I try to keep I try to keep in mind that power of what what can you suspend between two moments or scenes or whatever without actually saying them. What is that emotional resonance that kind of hovers in between the two because he was he was a master of that. Yeah, there's an art of juxtaposition. And he yes. does that in Jesus son as well. He does. Yeah. And even the stories from one, yeah, from one story to the next accomplishes that for sure. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he does another thing, you know, there's these old when you're like in high school or whatever, and you're learning about stories, you learn about like man versus nature, man versus society, right? And man versus man, you learn all of those. And it's not that that's not useful. That's sort of like a, it's sort of an elementary way of looking at it. But Dennis Johnson was great at doing like, he was great at making it feel like everything was man versus self, right? So he, put, he puts these people in any context and, and, and sort of is able to is able to crunch down onto the fact that this is actually a person dealing with himself. And even though it looks like this outer thing, he, I feel like the conflicts he sets up accomplish that really well. So, yeah, I try to keep. I try to keep him in mind um I think early on George Saunders was was more of an influence on me than I feel coming through now I still think he's a great writer um that hysterical kind of I think they call it hysterical realism that he sort of did doesn't quite work for me as the way that it used to so I don't know how much I'm borrowing from him anymore um Alan Gorganis, again i love that guy he was a bit of a mentor to, uh, for me um, who wrote uh, what is the name of that great big book he wrote oldest living confederate widow tells all which is a great book um, sort of in the Faulkner tradition almost um, yeah I don't know that I borrow a whole heck of a lot from him though he gave me he suggested a bunch of books that I read that all of them are um you know sort of top of my list books now so he he influenced me I guess person to person more than more than as a than as a writer that I kind of poured over yeah I'm not familiar with him so I'll have to check him out yeah yeah the oldest living oldest I've struggled to say it, oldest living confederate widow tells all it's a doorstopper of a book but it's it's funny it's very southern um yeah, it's witty. It's uh, it's pretty compelling. He's he's an extremely talented guy. So uh,
0: I gather, I kind of get the impression from you that uh, you know the desire to
1: write goes way back. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Yeah, yeah. It's maybe pretentious to say, but I don't remember ever not wanting to write. <laughs> to be honest, I since I. I mean, when I was in like first grade, I was making comic books with my friends. I was trying to draw them too, but I don't, I actually, I was first grade. So who even knows if I was a good artist. I, I wasn't uh, stellar, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember very early on my mother bringing home a typewriter from work, like an old typewriter they weren't using anymore or something. And just like giving me some paper and telling me to go at it basically. <laughs> and I mean, I must've, that must that must've been first or second grade. So, um, so yeah, it was, it's always kind of been there. Nice. Yeah. So was there anything, was it just kind of
0: whatever was around, or did you have a particular book or writer that you encountered early on where you were like, mm-hmm. I want to make that.
1: Yeah. I, I, um, I think like a lot of writers, I was a bit of a precocious reader. And so I kind of skipped over all of the, you know, YA stuff, I guess. Mm-hmm. I went from, went from like, uh, uh, Bernstein Bears to Jack London to Stephen King pretty quickly, right in elementary school. And so I guess the first iterations were um, the first like, I think I remember reading misery in like third or fourth grade, which I don't know if a third or fourth grader should read misery exactly. (laughs) Um, I mean, I guess it's fine. But um, I think my parents not being particularly literary, they assumed that if it was in a book, it was fine. <laughs> right, right. So yeah. so to them it was like, well, it's a book. you're supposed to read books, right? So it must be fine. Um, so uh, I did so that misery and then falling into Stephen King and Michael Crichton was very much like uh, um, leaned me more towards uh, kind of speculative fiction. Um, and then eventually I had a long streak of not of writing more much more realistic um, material. Um, but yeah, those were sort of the, probably Stephen King and Michael Crichton and Jack London and, uh, uh, a little bit later, John Steinbeck. Um, those were sort of big ones that made me think like, I kind of want to do this sort of thing, yeah, cool. um, especially Stephen King. I mean, yeah. I, I know he gets, it's easy to, um, it's easy to sort of look down on that or condescend to Stephen King now. And, and I don't think everything he writes is, you know, absolutely brilliant, but, um, he puts together a good story, like for a a young writer trying to learn how to put together a story, like how is a plot supposed to work? um, He's a pretty good example to look up to, I think. And then you can, you know, then you can go off from there. Yeah. Um, Did you ever, have you read the Bachman books? Yeah, I read a couple of them. I'm blanking on the titles though. Um, Yeah, because they had a he had like a phase in like what was like the early two thousands or something when he started putting out the, the Bachman books. Well, so they
0: actually date back to um, his early days. It's like early eighties, late seventies, but they're like non-horror books that he was writing under a pseudonym.
1: And then later he copped to being Richard Bachman and then republished them. Okay. I Um, must've caught them when they were republished. I think I read one, but I'm totally blanking on the title.
0: Yeah. So like the running man, which was made into a movie. That's one mm-hmm. of them. Okay. Um, I don't know that like, I, yeah, I don't think his books are like really well-written on a sentence level or anything yeah. like that. But like, I kind of like those books because they're, they're like kind of dystopian. They're not mm-hmm. science fiction and they're not horror. No, but there's something like there's this like very American dystopia mm-hmm. and like, kind of like a sense of anger running through these books. Yeah. All these yeah. books are about like alone, like a lone guy going up against just a horrible culture and, 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 you know, the, the, yeah. the corporations and the government are just against you, you know, <laughs> right, um, right, right, I kind of like this sort of like, you know, punk anger that's sort of running through the, those books.
1: Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. I never thought about it that way, but, but it, it, uh, it, it, that's definitely true. I will tell you one thing. So I taught briefly at, um I taught writing briefly at a jail in Texas Um and, I was constantly trying to get like pieces of writing that I thought were good to, for these guys to get enthusiastic about. And the only thing there was a Jack London story that worked. I kept, I I was trying to be too pretentious about it at first. Um, and it just nothing landed. There was a Jack London story that worked. And then we read the first chapter of Stephen King's, the dark tower, the first volume of the, um, whatever that series was called the gunslinger right? the gunslinger yeah um um and they loved it yeah and if you go back and you read that that's that i think that might be his best written book at least the first chapter and maybe it's just because i spent a ton of time like pouring over it um to try and you know make a little bit of a a two-hour curriculum around it um but yeah i think he he could hit some some high some reasonably literary notes when he really wanted to but uh there's something about that i feel like he chose quantity over quality or maybe he didn't choose yeah i don't know it shows him yeah (laughs) yeah yeah exactly yeah um okay yeah uh
0: any other kind of so you said uh stephen king michael crichton i i I went through a big crichton phase too i feel like there was like one summer where I was in, it was like a transition from middle school to high school. Mm -hmm. And I just like, didn't do anything, but like hang out in the house and read Michael Crichton books.
1: Yeah. I I had sort of a similar thing. I read kind of one after the other. And again, like as a young writer, it was, they're, they're not, you know, they're not Dostoevsky, but they do have, they're really good at plot and they're really good at like putting all the pieces on the board and making the pieces move and they're really good at making you turn the page. Um, and so those were really effective for me. And then sort of in like high school, I started to get into, I had read all the stuff, my brother, my, I have an older brother, I read all the stuff he was assigned. And so by the when I like got into, you know, ninth or 10th grade, I'd already read everything that had been assigned. And so I needed, I started sort of looking far afield, you know, and then kind of running into and probably the next two biggest things would have been Kafka and, and, uh, Jack Kerouac I ran into in high school. And those were, um, those sort of made me think like I had been writing a bunch of like, you know, in middle school or elementary school, even I was writing like monster stories and stuff like that, like Stephen King style stuff. And then ran into, you know, these more literary figures and, um, kind of realize like oh man I've just been doing this at like the surface there's like a whole world <laughs> that I haven't even gotten into yet and I'm going to try to figure out how to get there um, yeah yeah that we were very similar trajectory I
0: yeah I definitely read Kerouac and Kafka in high school I had an English teacher one year who I, I had read a lot of the books that were going to be assigned. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she actually assumed that I had just read everything that was in the classroom. It wasn't really true, but it was close to being true. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so she just said, you basically pick the books that you want to read. Nice. Um, and that's <laughs> when I like went, to, I went to the library and I um, discovered uh, Joyce and Kafka and mm-hmm. Kerouac and T.S. Elliott Yeah. Uh, So basically, like, I that's when I like jumped from, you know, the like Michael Crichton, Tom Clancy, and so I mean, I read a lot of science fiction and fantasy throughout my childhood, and then like kind of leaped from that to literary
1: modernism, which I did not understand a lot of it, but I was like really fascinated by it. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I don't. I I I think I read everything you could get your every published kafka work you know by the time i was 17 or 18 and then in the last few years i've kind of gone back and read a lot of it and yeah i kind of realized now that i had no idea what i was reading back then <laughs> i don't even know why i kept reading it like i didn't get it at all and i'm sure there's stuff i still don't get um but i read it now and i think it's just as brilliant as i did then but um you know there's a lot more Oh, I'm just a lot smarter now, I guess, you know,
0: (laughs) but. It's just experience. Like, so a lot of the stuff is just meant to be read over and over. Like Kafka in particular is like, it's meant to be like this impossible object in a way like the Mm -hmm. MC Escher
1: paintings, you know, it's just like, you're looking at a a paradox, you know? Right. Right. And what, what broke it open, I think what was huge as me developing as a writer in Kafka was it was the first time that I had read anything. Um, it was the first time that I'd read anything where it didn't feel like there was like an... Uh, I'd read science fiction and I'd read some, some horror and I'd read you know Brave New World and I'd read 1984 and, and those kinds of things. But Kafka was the first person who, as I read it, I was like, oh, this guy isn't going to tell me the answer to anything. Right. There isn't it's not a rat. It's not rational. He's not telling you what the rules of the world are. Um, And that cracked something open for me. It's like a fable. But at the end, the moral is totally ambiguous. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so that cracked that cracked me open as a writer was like, oh, so I don't I don't have to actually this. I'm not. In fact, I, I shouldn't be trying to give anybody the answer to anything. That's like the wrong way to even think about this and that 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 makes it harder and also i found to be uh make make it make it make it harder as a craft but make it easier as like a responsibility or something (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah so um
0: yeah do you want to talk at all about uh I guess your writing process, or just kind of the discipline of writing, because uh, sure, no, you, know, you yeah. do. Uh, I, I see your writing tips every day. Those are pretty cool. So you, yeah, I know that it's something that like you think about a lot.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I do, and and you know the writing tips thing is sort of like, oh, you know, I guess I'm just trying to get engagement right but like like all of us but but they're also things that i think about and i use or 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 um have sort of come to me over time um yeah so you know i it's something i've been obviously i've been doing for years now and I, i kind of learned i didn't really have good habits until i was in an mfa program and i i was sort of given i was sort of given this three years where um any routine or approach would have been acceptable, but I needed to find one. Um, and so was able to kind of define what works for me in that space. Um, I mean, the one thing I would say for for writing a novel in particular and, and different kinds of writing maybe don't quite work this way. I find it extremely important to work on it every day, um, at least a little bit. Um, and, and part of the reason for that is I think of a novel in development, not, not when I read it, but in working on on making one, it's, it's a little bit of like a Rube Goldberg machine, you know, where you kind of, you, you, you drop the ball into the bucket and then the bucket falls and knocks a candle over that, that, that lights a string on fire. And that, you know, it's like, in if I'm not half of the, half of the every day of work is just setting the Rube Goldberg machine back up. So I can get the next piece into place. And so if I don't do that for a stretch of time, I start to forget where does the candle that lights the string go? like I start to lose track emotionally and cognitively of how this machine gets put back together um, And so I think that's super important and I think a lot of other writers would say that too every day finding finding some amount of time every day um, and, there's um th- there's also a thing of like you know and I guess this is for somebody this is more thinking along the lines of like how serious are you going to take it you know and, and there's nothing there's nothing to say that you've got to like give up your life to try and do this um but what I would say is that writing novel is extremely difficult and it's like the hardest thing that I've ever done right I've done it a couple times now um and what that partially required for me was deciding what I was willing to give up for it right it was like I can't just have every piece of a life that you might want right so what pieces am I willing to trade in to do this um and I remember there was a time when I was this was just before I got into an MFA program um where I decided that I don't have any hobbies anymore there's no hobbies. <laughs> so I was climbing and snowboarding and the, the you know outdoor stuff. I was living in Idaho, which is a perfect place for it. And I just had like a day where I was like, nope, I'm not doing any of those things ever now. Um and now I've relaxed a little bit on that, but I needed that sort of seriousness, you know. So I sold off my all my equipment and and like was like, I don't, you know, I don't do anything. Um, so that's an example for me of like, what was a compromise that needed to be made? I suppose now my compromise is that I don't really sleep as much as I probably should. I, I get up at, uh, I get up at four 15 in the morning, um, and write for like an hour and a half. And then, you know, I go be a normal person for most of the rest of the day. Um, so is this why you write about sleep and dreams? <laughs> that's a good question right um I mean house of sleep yeah in some regards house of sleep was almost the entire thing was written before seven o'clock in the morning um and I've always had an extremely vivid dream life and yeah I think there is something to you know it's important to me that writing is like the first thing that I do in the morning or very soon after waking um And there's something about that still semi-dreamy state that allowed me easier access, particularly for that book, where um, there's a lot of, I almost hate to say the the term, but there's a lot of dream sequences, uh, which which, um, I would advise anybody writing to avoid, personally. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, but but having yeah having a strange relationship to sleep is is important. I used to be a bit of an insomniac, but it doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Thank God. Yeah, I, I tried doing that myself when I was trying to write a novel, and I
0: mm-hmm. I got up early in the morning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been trying to do that again with the podcast, and when I'm able to do it, it works. Yeah, very well. I just it's hard to keep at it. Uh, So congratulations to you if you figured out how to keep doing that every day.
1: Oh, man, it Ah. took a long time. Honestly, it took a long time of it being hard to do just like anything. Right. Just it's difficult. It's difficult. And now it's funny that if something if there's like a noise in the middle of the night that wakes me up, I just go on autopilot and I like start getting ready. Like, like our dogs woke up at two o'clock in the morning the other day. And I like got up and put on sweatpants and like got my, like, I got like halfway ready to to go. And I was like, Oh my God, it's only two o'clock in the morning. Like, what am I doing? (laughs) So I'm on autopilot, I guess. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So I'm sort of on autopilot. So I don't know how long it takes to get to autopilot, but I did finally get there. Yeah. That
0: I mean, that was my idea was that, you know, you were just dreaming you just continue (laughs) that while you're awake yeah. or you know um sometimes though it you know you just sit there and like yep. try to pull one word after another and it doesn't really work but then yep. what i found would happen um is that something that was you know difficult to kind of figure out early on in the morning go to work and then randomly find myself having to like grab a piece of paper write something down cuz yes stuff's just popping into my head yeah 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 started the crank and that machinery is still working
1: right right. stuff yeah absolutely no i think that's i think that's true and yeah i have that i have that a lot too where it's like i will i will this happened just the other day where i had my morning session and got basically nothing done and then uh during my working day um I just, I left work and for lunch and I went and I sat in a parking lot for about half an hour and I wrote like two pages because just something fell into place. And the next thing was kind of obvious all of a sudden, even though I'd spent an hour and a half all morning, kind of pounding my head saying, this should make sense. What is, you know, what happens next? And then you're right. This is like something fell into place later and it became easy. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a strange process. There's no, uh, you, you know, you kind of got to throw all the logic out of, out of the window. Um, you know, and I think there is, I, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the guy on Twitter, um, Owen Cyclops. Yeah. Yeah. So he had, I think it was him. He had a, he had a post on Twitter not that long ago where he said something about, I wish I knew it verbatim because it was brilliantly put as a lot of things he says are, and it was basically like artistic creation is just boring yourself until you mildly hallucinate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. You just kind of sit there and like, eh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And then eventually you get so bored that, you know, connections start to get made and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um. So your are I
0: was going through your uh, writing tips and yeah. uh, kind of looking to you know, kind of jump starting the, you know, what, what, what I'm going to ask you about my um, yeah. ideas. Um, and I hit on this one recently that um, I think is intimately connected to uh house of sleep and uh, presumably kind of what you're, you're really interested in creatively. Um, and it was, you must learn to swim the waters in which the madman drowns. We borrow here from the shamanic tradition.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's, there's levels to this whole there's levels to the whole writing game. And I don't want to presuppose that I'm in one or the other, but um, there's a lot of folks who are writing like uh, they're writing, say a romance novel and they just want to write the tropes of a romance novel. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, But I think if you're going to try and if you're going to try and which I, am trying to do in my own ham-fisted way, trying to play in the same place that Kafka did, for example, or, you know, name another writer. Um, there is a certain level of kind of madness that you need to at least flirt with. Um, you need to, to deal with characters who are not like you. So there's a, I guess, a, a, a quasi-schizophrenic component to that. Um, you need to um, sometimes revisit stuff that was painful for you because you know it's going to make a good scene or a good move or a good, a good aspect of a character. Um, you need to revisit other people's pain. You need to take like weird, almost psychological chances. Um, you need to stare into the abyss a little bit from time to time. Um, and then, you know, on top of that, there's also and that, that's just in the, in the, the craft of, of actually getting words down on the page. There's another thing that's like, um, so you spend hours and hours and hours and hours doing this and you know the whole time that maybe nobody will ever read it or maybe the people who do read it will think it's pretty dumb. Um, and so there's a there's a pending um identity crisis with all of that right every every year that goes by where you woke up every morning and did it it's sort of like there's a part of you that kind of has to ask like well couldn't i be you know if this doesn't if nobody cares and uh you know do i do i still care um and also like couldn't i have been doing something else that might have, uh, you know, brought me money or brought me, you know, whatever, stability and security and slash sanity or whatever. So, so that, that um, self-imposed delusion is partly what I mean by, by that, you know, swimming in the same waters as the madman. But the other is, I think if you're really writing a, a novel that's going to do something psychological, I don't think you come out of it psychologically unscathed. I, I think you've you know if you go far enough and deep enough it's it's going to affect you as well you know trying to figure out the exact perfect sentence to explain some terrible thing that happens to a character you invented who lives in your brain um it's tricky you need to, you need to look out for for being infected by it I feel like you know uh you know getting back to Stephen
0: King like he uh You know, he's claimed that there's whole books that he doesn't remember writing. And maybe that's just because, you know, I mean, he was like, he was an alcoholic and was also just like insanely productive. Yeah. But at the same time, I do kind of wonder if he wasn't like that's There's that madness that he was flirting with, like really Mm -hmm. strongly to where, you know,
1: he was just like completely connected to his id or his shadow or whatever you like right right and then it's so yeah so there was a there's like a, a way in which it wasn't passing through the part of his brain that makes long-term memories right there's like right yeah yeah yeah. that, that could very well be um yeah and this well and especially the stuff that he was writing right or anybody who's like a thomas lagatti or or hp lovecraft or something like that um yeah those are you're you're wrestling with demons a little bit, whether, whether you believe in demons or not. Um, yeah. There's, there's uh there's some, there's some uh, warfare going on in the astral plane. And, and uh, um, yeah, you got to learn how to, you got to learn how to survive that a little bit.
0: Well, this and is what I, yeah, and
1: then go about your day, you know, like, yeah. you know, go out and shake people's hands and, and, uh, or whatever it is you do for, for a living, you know? This is what's valuable about
0: writers and I think our society doesn't actually appreciate that at this moment is that they're able to wrestle with the demons for for all of us, you mm-hmm. know. Um I don't know, you mentioned uh like writing about people that are not like you. Do you feel like hemmed in by the fact that there actually there is this idea now that a lot of people have is that you're not supposed to write about people that aren't like you because they own their experience, right? Right.
1: Right yeah i I think i think that's a dramatic under dramatic uh, misappreciation if that's a word of what literature is supposed to do um you know i I do i do understand that if you're going to write about um a, a set of characters in a context that you're not you know maybe isn't your home context like if i were to do that then then you know, I would want to take my research very seriously and I would want to talk to people that are in that context. And I would want to try and get it as right as I could. But to be to feel like I'm not allowed to do that is is pretty ridiculous in my opinion. I mean like how boring would it be if if all of the all of the you know great writers of the past they could only write about their specific context, you know, I'm reading a lot of Faulkner now, mostly by bio, his bio, a biography of him for um, a upcoming episode of Art of Darkness. And I got to thinking about it in this relationship.' like, well what if Faulkner? Now Faulkner's characters often were much like him in terms of social milieu and all of that. but like what if he wasn't allowed to write from the perspective of the black um, former slave character? Like, would we all benefit from the fact that he wasn't allowed to do that? I just don't see, I don't see what's good about that necessarily. I don't see what it's getting any of us. Um, And yeah, I don't, I don't like, I guess I don't like anything that, 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 uh, that, you know, applies rules to what a writer can and cannot do. Um, Whether a person is willing to read the next page That's the rules to me. Right. You know what I mean? Like, does it work? That's the, those are the rules. And so this other stuff is very, very odd to me. And I feel like I may have got out of the MFA world in the academic world, just in time to dodge most of this, because it feels like it's gotten very, it's gotten very surreal. And, uh, yeah, there's, there's a, uh, you know, it's not maybe as bad as trying to being, um, Solzhenitsyn, I'm, I can never say that right. So that's my uh, <laughs> that's my moment where I show you how much of a uh, a pleb I am. Right. Um, but you imagine him, you know, we're, we're not, writers aren't under those circumstances by any means, but. but No, you're not getting thrown into the gulag. <laughs> the gulag. Right, right, right. So, but, but anything that tends toward that is, is sort of repulsive to me. I, I don't understand. I don't understand what's to even to be gained from it for the most part. I, yeah. I think it's really damaging but it might be it might be a fad as well hopefully it will yeah i think it's i think it will i think that's the pendulum will kind of swing i mean it, you know if i want to be generous to it i guess i would say that it's making writers a good thing it might have is make writers be a little to make sure that they're doing their due diligence right it's like but i think that's a minor i think that's kind of a minor thing anyway i i, I just don't understand you you'll see the 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 ya world the young adult fiction world is like eating itself with this stuff right now Mm. um and that's not a world i pay attention to much other than i'm in the self-published realm so um you know you'll have books that have been pulled out of publication because there was a racist character in them it's like well if we can't have a racist character how are you ever going to deal with racism yeah. right like what, what are, you're it's it's worse you're sort of want everything to pretend it doesn't exist and i don't see how that how i don't see how that is beneficial to writers or readers or anybody yeah well i know you saw
0: you know the recent i guess this is kind of a recurrent flare up of discourse yeah. around uh the catcher in the rye yes Twitter, and it's <laughs> like you know you've got people that are like the catch, and I haven't actually read it since I was sixteen, so I, yeah. I I feel like I probably need to reevaluate it. But you know, uh, people are basically like the catcher in the rye is terrible because I don't like Holden Caulfield. Right, right. This is not yeah. somebody I would hang out with, so it's a bad right. book.
1: Right. It's the it's the most ridiculous, like JD Salinger probably didn't like Holden. like what it's a, it's it's the it's the most bizarre opinion to have about it. Yeah, I don't really like Holden Caulfield either he's kind of a snot-nosed kid but he's also a kid right and his brother has just died of leukemia or whatever and like you know things are not going well Um, Well, being a jackass is part of the experience of being a teenager yeah yeah, exactly (laughs) exactly right like yeah what's he yeah what do you yeah so that's very strange to me that you would throw an entire book out based on based on that, whether you like the character or not, or and then even worse, like whether you feel like the author had the right to write about that kind of character. Just yeah. yeah, I mean yeah, it's it's a misappreciation, a misunderstanding of what I think literature is supposed to be is supposed to be. Yeah. So uh you know kind of on the subject
0: of of literary fads and uh whatnot, one one of the things that I like about house of sleep is aside from some references that do mark it as um contemporary it it actually feels like a book that could have been published like at any time in my lifetime oh i'm glad i'm glad yeah what i mean and i mean i did i do mean that as a compliment uh, because um you know there's no i do think there's a real Um, obsession sometimes with writers of like trying to be the voice of the current moment or the Mm -hmm. current generation and I don't feel that and I feel like this is a book you could have you know when I was first getting into literature like that it could have been a book that I picked up and read at that time as
1: well yeah I'm glad to hear you say I mean that is intentional and there's some very specific choices that I kind of made that make it I feel like lend to that tendency of it I mean you don't know geographically where it is Um, you don't know people's last names Um, there's and then that adds sort of all to this there's early on, there's a couple sort of pop cultural references, but there's very, very, very few throughout. Um, and yeah, that's, that was intentional for me. I, I, I'm, uh, I don't really personally, I don't have an issue with them, but I, I don't draw, find myself drawn to books that are topical generally. Um, you know, po- like I don't really care for most political novels. Um, you know, I have, political thoughts or beliefs or whatever we want to call them, but I, it it's not the territory for that kind of stuff to me. Um, you know, I have friends and people I know and writers I like who do d- dwell in that. Um, you know, <laughs> one of the most popular books of the last few years and is uh what is that book, Ready Player One? Are you familiar yeah. with that? I, I know of it. I have yeah, never read it. I, I've never read it and I, I couldn't bear to, I don't think, but I read a couple pages just out of curiosity. And um the level of the level of cultural reference and nostalgia mining and all of that was I felt physically ill <laughs> <laughs> reading just like three or four pages of it um and so yeah I'm like consciously trying not to do that and I suppose I want it to feel somewhat timeless I I, I don't know I mean some of the greatest books I've read in the past you know um it's something I read like in the last year. Um, Oh, the glass bead game. I don't know if you've read that by by Hesse. Uh, it's um, big on the list. I've I've definitely read some
0: Hesse, but that's why yeah. I, I need to let, read. Yeah,
1: it. it's 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 a big clunk. You know, it's a big thick book, and it, it's it's it, it's it, that's a book that feels like it could have happened at any time, um, and it's doing this weird future thing where it's it's taking place in the future, but it still doesn't feel. It feels like a future that didn't pass through our time. I guess. Yeah. Um, but it works because of that it attains like a little bit of the hint of a hint of a fable or a biblical passage or something like that where yeah it could happen this could basically happen at any time
0: yeah i mean there is a bit of feel of like uh i don't know like post you know uh new age and tech california yeah yeah um, that's and, in there but for then sure. like you take away some of the specifics but it also could be like 19th century theosophy stuff too you know right. and it
1: would work right. just as well Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm glad you saw it that way. I was definitely going for that. I wanted to strip away, I wanted to strip away uh, as many signifiers as I could get away with and make it still, make it still work. So, yeah. Well, uh, now would probably be a good time. I did ask you if you wanted to
0: read the introduction to House sure. of Sure, yeah. Go ahead and do that. Yeah, sure. And um I don't know if I'll set it up in any way. I'm just gonna read. It's basically yeah, the first. Whatever page. you
1: want to do, if you want to give the background to it or explain after or whatever. Yeah. Like um. So just as a, I mean, I guess because anybody who listens to this, I want them to read House of Sleep. So <laughs> I will uh, just give you a little bit of a like a, a intro. This this first bit I'm gonna read is um, it's in the voice of uh, a. Uh, a character named the diving man and the diving man is the charismatic guru leader of, um, a place called the house of sleep. Um, and what's happening at the house of sleep is, is, um, they've found a means to remember their dreams as though they had happened yesterday. And so this group of people lives in under the diving man, live in, in isolation. Um, and they're every day, they're, they're sort of sharing their dreams and they're gradually, sort of living in each other's dreams, right? And you know, whether this is metaphysical or whether this is just because they are all sharing the same day material every single day, you know, maybe it's not 100% clear. Um but there are interludes while most of the book is written um third person following two different um people who end up at the house of sleep, there are interludes in which the diving man himself is speaking um to the reader and so that's how the book starts and I'm just going to read a one page and hopefully this gets a sense of what this guy is like and to some extent what the book is like <clears throat> the mind is an ocean is it not set aside your psychometrics and fMRIs and just feel the epic slosh within your head they never taught you that metaphors are magic did they how we use them to claw our way to the top of the food chain. A stick is an arm and a fire is a stomach and the infinite is the sky is a father. And I'm telling you just as true that our mind is an ocean and where you actually live my dear friend is behind the controls of an infinitesimal submarine plumbing these steps, pointing at your radar screen and hollering back that there is nothing out there, nothing at all. <clears throat> the problem is that you have forgotten Though every desert hermit and bodhisattva tried to tell you there are realms outside your candy or air and seaweed cakes. But it is okay, my child. It is almost never too late. I am here to remind you, to remind everyone. See, I dive into it every day, leaping from an impossible cliff while my sleepers build, brick by brick, the kingdom we will share. I pierce the waters, the metaphorical, the actual, and I hold my breath for longer than a mere mortal is allowed you don't believe in anything anyway right what all could there be to lose so so that's that that's uh that's the diving man sort of daring you as the reader to kind of come along with him for this and a little bit of the way his mind works um so yeah yeah I still like that passage (laughs) I love that passage that's why I uh, wanted to
0: read it so Um, cool good And, you know, although there's nothing really meta or postmodern about this novel, uh, I can't help but think, you know, the diving man and that thing that you said about diving and and the shamanic tradition Mm -hmm. being important to writing, that there's a metaphor here about what it is to write and to create fiction.
1: Yeah, I think think that's true. I think... um... So you know, I give you an example of where where the diving man sort of came from. Um, and there's a well, he came out of a dream, right? And I, every once in a while, I have a, a characters just show up and they'll show up in a series of dreams, and then I I realize that I'm I'm supposed to write about that person. Um, but he's a little bit of uh, his 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 whole thing. I guess, in a lot of ways, and I don't want to give away too much about him, but one thing he does is every day he he jumps from this cliff and dives into the water and uh, apparently stays underwater for minutes at a time. Um, and, you know, how has he achieved this ability to do this thing? You know, he talks about a little bit. And, and one thing he says is that, um, <clears throat> well, like every every day I try to hold my breath a little bit longer and um, every second that longer I can hold it, the less afraid of death I am. Okay, and now what does this have to do with writing? Now, writing doesn't cause the fear of death necessarily, but but there is a thing where the deeper into the process you go, that means you can now go just a little bit deeper. So if every day you're diving into that water, plunging into the imagery and references and thoughts and feelings and moods and people that you know and snippets of conversation that you've heard and experiences you've had every day if you can plunge in into into that realm for long enough to bring something back you get a little bit more capable of doing that um so yeah there is there is I've never really thought about it in depth but there definitely is I think a relationship between that and the diving man is a sort of a he's a shamanic character in a way Um, he follows some of the tropes of, of, of being a shaman and and doesn't follow some others. Um, You know, one thing that he does seem to be able to do is um, convince people that an idea is some that he's had is something real. Um, And so while he may have, you know, altruistic or sinister ambitions to do that i think that's i think that's the magic trick that a writer is doing too a writer is is creating a realm where things happen and he's making it trying he or she is trying to make it real enough that someone reading it um is able to suspend this belief and live in that space for a while yeah so you know imaginary realms for sure yeah All right. So um, do you want to
0: transition into the tarot stuff?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the tarot a little bit. I know you've been, I mean, I'm excited to talk to you about tarot because you're Forest of symbols and you probably get this stuff better than I do. Um, uh, I I don't know that that's uh, necessarily
0: true, (laughs) but I, I feel like I kind of fly by the seat of my pants with this stuff. I maybe present myself as more, learned that I am I'm definitely a dabbler with Mm -hmm. tarot um but I've been uh yeah I've been like posting a lot of tarot stuff in the last week that's kind of like a prep preparation okay uh, yeah for for talking with you about this and I've been reading um Arthur Waite's pictorial guide to the tarot okay um, that's a good one yeah and uh I know you
1: did the art of darkness on uh Pamela Coleman Smith who uh did the art for that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, that was really, that was a great experience for me putting that episode together, Um, you know, doing this sort of deep dive. I knew of her and I knew, you know, maybe three sentences to describe her. um, But, you know, read a biography and read a lot of material about her. And um, it was cool because it solidified my relationship with the deck that she she illustrated um i have a whole bunch of decks i actually just got another deck as a gift from a a beautiful deck from called the botanic the botanica tarot um it's all flowers it's gorgeous i probably will never use it to give a reading but i like having it um and i have i have um crowley's deck i have the um the Hermetic Tarot, the Aquarius, I probably have eight or nine decks at this point, but I still stick with, i, I the Rider weight is the one that works the best for me. Um, and doing that episode with Pamela, about Pamela Coleman Smith, it made me understand that, uh, well, there is no official tarot right they're they're all interpretations which is part of the beauty of it Mm -hmm. um and so you can you can glom onto any one interpretation that works the best for you and and pamela coleman smith to me feels like the perfect marriage of more modern and and maybe some of these deeper older ideas that have managed to survive as the deck has sort of evolved and spread and and grown this is uh for those who don't know what usually goes by the name writers
0: or writer wait yeah but right, she the writer. is really like one of, uh, an underappreciated uh you know creative force behind that in a yeah
1: way. yeah the it deck, was actually. And, yeah writer so writer was i guess just the publisher and when weight had done um who was they were um weight and um pamela coleman smith were both in the hermetic order of the golden dawn which is like a secret society near the uh turn of the century that's the 19th to the 20th century um and uh he had sort of asked her if she would do this and she painted the deck in like i think it was about three months she painted the entire deck which is pretty impressive 78 cards um and she must have just done it in a sort of a spasm of creativity you know um you know if she got up early in the morning to do it (laughs) i doubt she did she seemed like a well maybe it depends at that phase yeah she she uh she was lucky enough that it was her job to to be an artist so um so that that helps when you don't have anything else to do um yeah but she was amazingly productive for that yeah for sure i really
0: liked your in the episode you you said that it's kind of like they kind of seem like illustrations of like a very literary children's book or yeah. something
1: like that yeah yeah it, it, it's always struck me that way as well um and there's right, they're not like... the it's not the most sophisticated art you're going to come across by no. any means yeah
0: no yeah. but there's something yeah there's something kind of uh naive but mm-hmm. then a little uncanny at the
1: same time about it right 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 yeah and it makes me feel like pamela was probably a little bit of a savant Honestly, I mean, she was mm-hmm. she was a known synesthete, and I I wonder how much of this stuff she illustrated thinking carefully about it versus how much of it she just kind of vibed. You know, um, I'm not sure where the where the breaking line is between those two things with her, but whatever she did, it works. Yeah, um, yeah so but you know, it's a it's a deck from uh, around the I think 1912. Maybe they actually published it, um, but there had been many decks before that. Um, there had been, uh, the Marseille deck, which is, which is what, uh, Alejandro, uh, swears by and won't use anything else. Um, and, you know, they go back even further than that. Most people don't use decks that are older than that. Um, but you know, it goes back to sometime in the late 14th century in Milan, um, when, uh, a, uh. I don't know what his title was exactly, but basically he was running Milan uh, Sforza, and he had a a deck of playing cards commissioned for him specifically, um, and all these added icon- iconographic images were were included that then later influenced other decks, and eventually, you know, several hundred years later, you have a uh, kitty cat tarot. Which, yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> so um, from from what we know, because we don't know exactly what the origins are, but no, uh, from what we, and there's like an older idea that it's actually from ancient Egypt and right. et cetera, but yeah. it, it seems to emerge uh, out of... A society that's coming out of the middle ages into the earliest stage of the modern
1: era right yeah i think i think that's fair to say yeah yeah i mean the oldest the oldest identified decks are, are from specifically that period for sure and, um, and
0: obviously it, the imagery and the the uh, court cards are
1: the, it's um, built on these like medieval right right you have knights and pages and kings and queens and yeah and those all seem like those all seem like um uh cartoon characters to us now right a night a little bit but but it wasn't to those people that you know people living at that time those were those were actual actual things um even if some of it was a little legendary you know it wasn't like there was always going to be a knight walking through your town necessarily but um but yeah so they were you know they were kind of playing on Things that people around them would have been would have known about, um, and it appears that the first tarot deck was actually the the major cards were um, were drawing on elements from the man who commissioned its life and his family's life. Um, that's what it seems like. A lot of them, um, like for instance, there's uh the 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 hierophant used to be the um, in this force deck was the popes. And um, in Sforza's family, it was like his great aunt or something. Um, if I'm remembering this right, she declared herself the Pope and started like a splinter off the Catholic Church that treated, regarded her as a as the Pope, right? And so then in Sforza's deck, some years later, they put this in his deck of playing cards. They put the Popus in there. And it's like a little, it's like the life of Sforza, sort of. Um And then, you know, so then you get like these sort of claims of like legitimacy, like, well, should it be the popist then instead of the, instead of the hierophant? Or um, does that mean this is all just nonsense and there's no, you know, magic powers to it at all? (laughs) Which, which to me, I love living in that like space of uncertainty, right? Like, to me, it doesn't quite matter where you kind of settle on it. uh, And initially it seemed to be used primarily as like basically like a form of poker. Right. And not as like a divinatory thing. Right. Right. Yeah. No, it was definitely, there's no good evidence that early on it was used for anything, but playing games, the major arcana cards um, seemed to be like, um, you would sort of Trump each other. It was like, you'd have your number cards and there was something vaguely like poker going on. And then, you know, which whoever had the highest Trump card, it somehow added into the point system no one's actually sure how the what the game actually was in terms of what the rules were um but it was it was recognizable as a card game to us and there's the same there's just like in a poker deck there's there's four suits um there's four suits in the tarot and the minor arcana um so it would be quite some time actually before anybody tried to use it for anything like you know, divinatory practices or started to assume that there were, you know, deeply held secrets inside. I mean, I think it wasn't until like the 1700s before anybody really started to do that. Um, The gypsies might've been a little bit sooner uh, doing that than than the rest of Europe. But um, yeah, so to me, it's sort of like, there's a few things about it that that make me me chuckle in this regard. So you mentioned um, that the argument used to be that this was the 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 sort of slightly disguised handing down of Egyptian wisdom, right? And that hasn't been shown, none of the scholarship really supports that, like that there was a, a continuous lineage wisdom tradition of the tarot from ancient Egypt on. Um, I think... Some people tried to assign that to it to grant it some legitimacy, Um, but I think what kind of ends up happening, it it there probably is elements of Egyptian thought sort of baked in because there was a bit of an uh, Egyptomania. I'm not sure what the way to say that is. There was a bit of Egyptomania in the Renaissance and later, especially. Um, I think 19, if I'm not mistaken, 19th century England, everybody was crazy about Egypt um yeah so th- that's because they
0: uh well the, i think napoleon went into egypt and then they mm-hmm. deciphered the rosetta stone so right uh, and then later there was like king tut's tomb and there was a, a there's a lot of
1: egyptian discoveries that fed into that in the 19th century right 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 so in the car, the deck was evolving a lot at that time too so anybody who might be interested in both could very well start seeing some comparable patterns um between whatever is coming out of egypt either aesthetically or actually you know in translation and start applying it applying it to this deck because it's this beautifully open system that allows you to kind of put anything into it that you want right um that's what sort of works a part of what works about it i think it's 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 in some ways it's random and it's random in how you spread the cards um You know, I debate to myself, even whether the major arcana is just a bunch of symbols and they don't kind of matter what the order is. Um, I've sort of talked myself out of that over the years. And I think it, I think the order matters. I think over time, people, it's sort of like, I I think of it and I, I don't want to I don't want to commit a blasphemy here but the best analogy I can think of is the way that the books of the Bible were sort of gradually assembled over time right it wasn't all it wasn't all one person sat down and wrote the Bible from beginning to end there were multiple people there were decisions made about what goes in what doesn't go out go in there's translations I think the tarot ends up with something very similar um where it sort of evolves and it gets washed every generation by a new set of references and ideas and what's true sticks around through to the next generation and what's what maybe isn't as true maybe it goes away or maybe it goes away for a while and then comes back up when it's relevant um so i think yeah, i is, mean every yeah, church has its own bible the catholic bible right uh,
0: is quite different from the jewish bible for instance right. And, you know, uh, Protestant versions are different as well. So that's that, that's a good comparison, I think.
1: Yeah. I, so I think there's something kind of similar going on there, too. And I think, you know, one thing I've, it, one experience that I've had with the tarot is it's made me question what I think random actually means. So, like, you know, I don't know if you've ever, you've, I imagine you've had a spread done for you at some point or done one for yourself. Is that um, fair to so say? The, I actually have not.
0: done, uh, That's where, what I need to do next. Mainly, what I've done aside from I've kind of studied the cards individually, mm-hmm. and I'll do like shuffle and draw a card for mm-hmm. certain situations. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I've never done a full on spread yet. That's one ah. thing I need to. I kind of feel like I wanted to get more of a familiarity with the with the cards before I did that. But
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's. I think the the one thing that will come out to you to me it came out to me when i was doing it and maybe this will be the same experience for you and you can i guess see this when there's just one card is like purportedly shuffling all these things makes it random and then you will lay a card out or three cards or eight cards and it's like this speaks to me yeah <laughs> like this speaks to my moment right now like how is that is it just a rorschach test or is you know is there something else kind of poking pushing through the cards at me. Um, I don't have an answer for that at all. And I don't really even want an answer. I'm happy for it to be, I'm happy for it to be a mystery. Um, What I do know is that every time I've given somebody a reading, it has worked. (laughs) Now, what does worked mean? Well, I don't know. That's that definition changes. Um, But, but it's always worked. I don't think I've ever given somebody a reading and they're like, yeah, none of that meant anything to me. So, Yeah, there's something going on there for sure. So yeah, I, think, I mean, yeah. As far as all the esoteric arts go, mm-hmm. um
0: astrology, Kabbalah, uh alchemy, tarot is the one that appealed to me uh as being like the closest to uh literature. Yeah. Because you have characters. Mm-hmm. You got symbols. Yeah. You got the potentiality for A story in these juxtapositions Mm -hmm. and so like my my innate like literary interpreter starts going to work with this stuff and you got like the combination of like a structure and then you know just vibing you know yeah yeah you know there's always random elements in art too as i'm sure you you know from writing is that just pops pops up there so right um yeah and then there's the question of like yeah is it uh is it's just like a am I just imagining this or is there something really there in in
1: the meaning you know right 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 and 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 yeah I'm not like I said I think it's uh I think being in the space where you're not sure which of those two is is really cool I I I think um I, I was actually talking with a friend yesterday I don't have a lot of people in my life that are super into tarot other than like people that i've sort of forced it on them and so they're vaguely interested for the most part but i do have a friend who um who she does readings like she she this is like a side hustle for her she does readings and making it saying it's a hustle makes it sound like she's a grifter she's totally not but it's something she sort of does on the side um and uh she goes from a very like uh she's like I guess somebody might call her like a psychic, right? She's going from like a feeling through to what the other person is experiencing and going off very much going off of vibes. And if I, when I've given people readings, I'm it's, I don't do that at all, at least not consciously. I'm very much like, all right, well, here's, here's, here's these cards. And I've, you know, I read 12 books about these things, so I should know something about them (laughs) you know, and trying to stitch together what I know about, the, what the sim the symbols have meant to people over time and and seeing if we can't get some kind of meaning to hover up out of the cards based on that um that is, is absolutely up. the difference between me and my wife
0: too i yeah i'm like i have to read everything about this and she's like here's what i feel about x and then right. you know I'm always blown away by what she
1: says. I'm like, that has to be right. You know, that sounds exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, and that's what's so cool about the tarot is there isn't, there isn't a specific meaning to them. There's, there's a million, you know, countless different meanings at different layers of analysis um, that all are true because they're there. Like it's almost like if you can come up with an interpretation, that interpretation is in there. Whether it's through you know some knowledge of art history or his, um, religious iconography or just vibing or you know or whatever, it, to me it means that is in the, it is in the card. I mean that's like that's that's uh, some symbolic mysticism for sure. I think one thing you might be interested in if if you kind of continue exploring it, I'll tell you one thing that was really big for me early on was, um, I would just take the major arcana and in order and I would lay one card, you know, start with a fool, magician, high priestess, and I go all the way to the end. And I would think about sort of like an archetypal person, like and what that journey is to go through all of those cards. Cause I think what the tarot has purposely or accidentally, or, you know, through divine guidance arrived at, is it's like an alternative hero's journey right it's we've got joseph campbell's story and then there's this one and this one's more about the cultivation of a spirit or a soul and Yoderowski says that's what the tarot is for the tarot is a, an aid for you to build yourself a soul and so i think that's what the again accidentally or on purpose or guided by something else, I think that's what the Major Arcana eventually evolved into, was So uh, a way the, to track that.
0: Yeah, so for those who aren't familiar, do you want to um, explain what the difference between the Major and the Minor Arcana oh, sure. is? sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the Minor Arcana is, is the closest thing to, to what the traditional poker deck is. You've got um, four suits in the tarot. It's um, wands, cups, uh, swords, and pentacles um sometimes those have slightly different names depending on the the deck um you go ace through um ace through 10 and then there is a um in the rider weight smith there's a the page knight queen and king for each of those suits and then on top of that you've got a um that's the minor arcana on top of that you have a set of 22 cards starting with and these are usually when people show just like a card they're showing something from the major arcana um this is where you get the fool, you get the hanged man, you get the high priestess, you get death card, you get, um, uh, you know, the moon, you get all of these sort of strongly symbolic archetypal cards. Um, And generally in a reading, you read with a mix of all of these, you know, you'll shuffle all of these together. It's treated as one kind of set. um, And, you know, hopefully, i don't even know if hopefully maybe if you do a, get have a spread done you'll get one or two or or maybe three major cards from the major arcana and they they have a a little bit richer symbolic structure um and uh and a lot of previous decks before pamela coleman smith the minor arcana cards the suit cards didn't have any images on them at all they were just or sorry they had images but they didn't have pictorial pictorial representations of what the meanings were. They just had, you know, five pentacles on them. <clears throat> and whereas Pamela Coleman Smith has a, a little illustration on, on each one.
0: Yeah, being like a member of the the Golden Dawn, she would she's would have like put some of their specific, you know, esoteric teachings into it. That's where you start to get a lot of that stuff,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And before that, there was another major um innovation in tarot by, uh, not long before it, um, by, um, oh, this is one of those ones I've names I've read, but never said. So Eliphas Levi. Oh yeah. 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 Yeah, He started, he started, um, really purposely trying to integrate the Kabbalah into tarot, um, and, and was finding some significant resonances and seems to be able to, to work. I don't consider myself, i don't really understand the Kabbalah very well at all to be honest so i'm not going to try and tell you what all those resonances are um but he he's one who actively tried to integrate that into the imagery and he had a deck of his own that he developed um he developed with an artist at the time i think that deck is there might be some versions of it out there i've never actually seen it but so that was a generation or so before pamela coleman smith yeah So one example of this, and I'm by no means
0: like a deep learned person in Kabbalah either, but I know that, you know, there are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and Mm -hmm. uh, Kabbalah, Kabbalah, um, you know, just as these cards all have these complex meanings, the, in Kabbalah, the, each letter has a set of meanings, um, right. Magical resonance. And, and things like that and okay. those letters if you if you look into it actually originate as uh actual symbols of <laughs> like the lf which is our letter a um is an ox head oh okay I didn't know and, and lf actually means ox the word lf means ox And if you look at the letter a it's actually a flipped over upside down head of an ox you can just turn it over and see well,
1: yeah it is isn't it
0: <laughs> um and That's so yeah, really cool. there's like this, there's a snake in there, and there's all kinds of different things. Um, Interesting. And the, of course, there are 22 tarot trumps as well yeah. Yeah. in the major arcana, and so uh, they have been assigned in this esoteric version uh, a Hebrew letter. But okay. then, of course, it gets complicated because not everybody agrees on what letter is supposed to
1: go with what card. Right, right. And yeah, there were apparently some disputes um, uh, about this and what order they should go in. And, and there was a lot of late 19th century, there was a lot of um, there's a lot of argumentation about how this should all go sort of including Wait, who came up with this deck and, 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 and Levy and, and, and other people trying to figure out like, yeah, which, which letter, which Hebrew letter should go with which, which card. And well, the order of them that we were handed down to us from the you know previous generations doesn't quite line up with that. And, and, you know, I think all of that process was fruitful because I think we, and I say like we as like a species or something or a metaculture, we were probing around trying to make these cards mean something, you know, and so to have those disputes and, and sort of reshape the structure of it, to me, makes a lot of sense rather than being like, well, this is the truth. It's it's like, we're trying to... Because to, to me, what the tarot is, it's, it's we, I'm gonna, I'm, I always struggle to articulate this idea. We're trying to come up with, you know how a, a hologram, like it's made up of all these little bits and then you put it together, it creates this image, right? I think the tarot is sort of like that. It's this holographic thing by which all of it together something actually capital t true comes out of it. and so we're struggling to piece together which parts of the hologram are going to make this thing are going to make this thing float and live. Um, and so I think all those disputes just get us closer, sort of, right, yeah. Now, I don't know about the new phase of, like, we'd make a new tarot deck for everything. That's, I I don't know what to make of all that. But, you know, maybe some of those will survive. Maybe. I mean, that's, uh, do you know if,
0: like, that happened in, like, because it could just be that it's, like, getting popular now. And then just kind of, like, anything, like, most of that stuff is ephemeral. And then, Mm -hmm. like, maybe one or two will turn out to be, like right relevant to people later on and people will
1: find like deep meanings and that stuff too. Yeah. People were always, it's, it does seem like people were always doing this and and I'm sure not in the same numbers as they are now, but yeah, people were drawing, you know, their own decks just for their own use. Um, not necessarily as like something that they're trying to sell or popularize. Um, because it could be, you know, I imagine, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago, it would maybe be a difficult thing to get your hands on a deck, um, to to buy from somebody else so maybe you copy you know you copy down the cards um that someone you know has and you sort of draw them or paint them yourselves um or you you know have some alternative idea about what it should look like yeah no i think it's always been going on but just like everything the internet has like accelerated that process unbelievably Yeah. yeah yeah
0: so um i did something kind of interesting uh I was not planning on this, but I uh, okay. was waiting to get for the uh, time to start the interview, and I, I grabbed my the the one deck that I have. I, I'm not. I need to get more. Um, at, at the very least, um, I I need a, a writer weight deck of my own. But I have um, the Thoth deck. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Cro- Crowley's. That's and,
1: a gorgeous deck. I I really love that deck aesthetically.
0: Yeah, drawn yeah. by. Um, Frida Harris, Mm -hmm. who I don't know a lot
1: about, but it's interesting that it's another woman who did the artwork. Yeah. Right. They, it seems like the, these classic decks that stick around are, are some, the the Levy's deck will also had a woman painted, I believe. So yeah, there's something about uh, masculine feminine synergy or something, right. Yeah. Or, or men taking advantage of more talented women. I'm not sure which.
0: Yeah, that could be too. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, that deck is very um, that's like very modernist looking Mm -hmm. to me. There's a lot of like, striking angles you know if you look at like Future Start, it's all about like angles and motion and you get a little bit of more of that feel Yeah, um, definitely
1: from this deck than others it's also like pretty psychedelic too um, yeah i actually just as a quick aside i got to i got to uh when i was going to the university of texas the harry ransom center there if anybody's ever in austin and you're a book you know a book person go to the harry ransom center you don't have to be a student it's the greatest literary archive in north america um, and one thing that you can check out is Crowley's personal tarot deck. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Among many, many, many other cool things. Um, but yeah, they have that there. And you can do a 15-minute orientation and then you just fill out a little card and they will bring you his his tarot cards to look at for a while. Oh, that is cool. So,
0: yeah. So, so anyway, anyway, I decided to uh, shuffle the deck and pull a card for the occasion of the interview. Okay. And so... Um, kid you not it popped into my head and then I drew the card that popped into my head.
1: Whoa yeah see I believe that but I'm still always delighted by that (laughs) it's not the first time that it's it's happened Um,
0: you know hardly happens every time but yeah um, yeah so um, the card was the hanged man ooh yeah
1: i wonder if you have Uh, any thoughts as to why that would be relevant Ooh, yeah so the hangman is that's that's a that's a great card and and that's uh that's
0: uh i always i will say it may have some connection to the diving man because i was thinking about that in preparation for this well
1: well. i don't know yeah no absolutely so yeah he's he that's um uh Probably the most closely, at least just in appearance, the most closely related to the diving man would be that be the hanged man. I think there's I think there's some uh, actual resonances there as well. I, that's a that's a that is kind of a crazy card to to pull. So um, one thing I will tell you is I always um, in thinking about my own life, I generally can ask myself which minor arcana am I in right now. I kind of think of this as like a a process that you sort of cycle through them and. I sort of up until just recently considered myself to be in the hanged man uh, position. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's interesting that that card would come up, you know, it, it, ahead of you, you and I meeting and, and having a conversation. Um, it's a well, really, I, po- I posted a couple hanged hanged man things earlier. I did see that. Uh, and yeah. I loved the thing you had the, you had the world tree, the Norse world tree. hmm what is I, nobody nobody can pronounce that word right be your soul or whatever Yggdrasil or something Yggdrasil, like that Yggdrasil, yeah something like that um yeah so there seems to be some sort of norse influence in the actual cards being developed and i can't bring to mind what the the, the toast deck looks like for that card specifically but i can tell you like some ideas some thoughts i have about that card specifically just not from that deck but just in general i guess um I mean, the easy interpretations is it's it's something about suspension, right? It's something about uh, being stuck in a way. This is the this is a, if you go to the Renaissance Festival and you get a tarot reading, this is what they'll tell you. Um, it's about learning to be comfortable in that suspension, because at least on the rider weight deck, the look on the hanged man's face is is one of, um, if not happiness, at least being accepting the circumstances. Um, there's also a suggestion in the, this sort of initial reading that it's, um, that the hangman is actually hung himself there. His hands are behind his back and he's holding himself. So, so the, the implication is that he's holding himself in place. So the idea is that, you know, you're sort of stuck in this situation, but you're sort of the one that's keeping yourself there. Mm. Um, I mean, I kind of like those interpretations, um, to it's, it's sort of as far as they go, Um, I think there's a little bit more to it and I think major arcana cards in particular it's relevant to think about what comes before them and what comes after them so you know what comes before the hanged man is uh, well first what comes after the hanged man is death that's the card of death Mm -hmm. Um, and what comes before the hanged man uh, is uh, oh wait what does come before the hanged man uh justice justice yeah it it, depends on the deck is is part of the issue the Marseille deck i think its strength comes before it um um anyway so the death one is is actually probably the most relevant one so after the suspension or whatever we want to call it there is some kind of new beginning right death is all about the the sort of um uh prepping the grounds for the new thing that's going to come about it's it's irrelevant that it's in the basically smack dab in the middle of the fool's journey instead of at the end um so there's a sort of rejuvenation the hanged man also i think is um there is it's notable that his feet are pointed up so we, you'll see multiple figures in the tarot that have their heads or whatever they're carrying in different dispositions towards the sky. And they're, that is essentially their disposition to God in some way. So you'll see the magician is holding a wand perfectly straight. And sometimes people will be holding a sword perfectly straight. Mm. And sometimes they'll be holding them at angles, which means there's some kind of disconnect um or you're reassigning what you should be assigning to the sort of the divine will you're reassigning it to some more terrestrial influences i think part of what's interesting about the hanged man is there's this attitude of pointing the foot up at the sky and i think there's a way to read this and i might have gotten this from um, valentine Tomberg's uh meditations on the tarot um it's got a actually have it right here what's the subtitle a journey into christian hermeticism which is this is a book i recommend to anybody for you don't even have to be into the tarot to get something out of this one but i think i get it from there he says something about there's something in the hanged man of being in the state of suspension or uncertainty or not really knowing exactly what to do so instead of like pointing your head up to the divine will and getting something that way it's more pointing your feet up and like giving up the brain completely and just sort of becoming a completely like, like completely empty vessel. I'm going to just do whatever, whatever you inst- whatever I'm instructed to do at a level that I'm not even thinking about. Um, and, and thereby getting out of this state of suspension of, of, you know, being stuck. It's also worth noting that they used to crucify people upside down, I believe. You yeah. might know more about that than I do. So I think there's a, I think there's a recapitulation of actual um, crucifixion here. So there's also something about, there's also something about sacrifice. Yeah. And that's why, yeah. So,
0: yeah. Sometimes you'll talk about the, like the, the um, saints and apostles that were crucified in this way. Mm-hmm. And that's also why they will invoke um, Odin because he voluntarily sacrificed himself on the, world tree to get the knowledge of the runes right Um, and and an eye by the way (laughs) he didn't did he
1: not have an eye before is that the deal he sacrificed one of his eyes oh oh, oh i see he sacrificed one of his eyes and the idea there was like he was supposed he would then know he would then understand the mystery of death is that true I don't know much about
0: that. Ah, something like that. I don't know. But yeah. what he ultimately got out of it was was the rune, the the runes, which are they're they're the um, again. This is so in the Norse myth. You, it's an alphabet. It's a functional alphabet. It's what mm-hmm. they use for their language. But mm-hmm. then it also has all these um, other meanings and 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 re- magical resonances, just as the Hebrew letters in Kabbalah. Right. Um, so he got the knowledge of. Mm-hmm that and also the
1: meat of poetry ah interesting so, yeah. interesting yeah see i think i think there's some there's there's in the sacrifice component there's definitely there are definitely correspondences there and 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 you know i think i think it's worth this is one thing about the tarot that i find interesting and, and or more than interesting i guess much like um much like any old religion that has had much thinking done about it, much like Christianity, much like Judaism. I don't pretend to be an expert in any of those. There is a, there is a surface level of it that works for a certain person or certain group of people, just like the Bible, just like in Christianity, you have um, illustrated Bible stories for children, right? And those work for them. And when I say work, I mean, it's like, make up your own definition for what work is, but they work for children. Then, as you maybe mature, or get get a little bit more thoughtful, maybe then you have to actually read the Bible. And then maybe that doesn't quite work enough. It It doesn't provide you enough meat. So then you have to read Um, various thinkers who've thought about the Bible, right, various theologians, and maybe that doesn't work quite either, and so you've got to actually go out and have some kind of vaguely mystical experience, you know, maybe you go and have a fast or whatever, Um, but they're tiers of the same system of thoughts, right, I think the tarot is kind of like that too, so the hanged man, it's like it can mean like an infinite number of different things, depending on the context that you're trying to put it in. Um, For me, the hanged man resonated a lot because up until recently I felt sort of suspended. I was kind of hanging out there. I'd felt like I had made sacrifices, but they'd sort of not quite gotten me anywhere if that makes sense. I was yeah. like sort of tried to trade in a bunch of stuff and it turned out they it wasn't worth anything and it was very confusing to me. Um, that period, I feel like has since ended and I've sort of moved past that phase I don't feel stuck or suspended quite so much anymore. Um, but and part of that was like part of it was what I was talking about about just like letting God take over your feet, where I was just like, well, I'm just gonna not have feelings about this anymore. I'm just gonna do I'm just gonna do whatever I would do if I wasn't worried about any of that. Um and that seemed to work. Right. It kind of just shut down the 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 obnoxious human part of my brain for a while. And it sounds terrible to just go through the motions. I don't know if I went, just went through the motions, but there was something like that where I just sort of let this, let the cycle take over. And eventually, you know, you get to climb down from the tree, hopefully. Yeah.
0: Um, So do you use, um, I gather you do a lot of uh, uh, spreads for yourself personally. Yeah. Um, Do you use this primarily to interpret a situation that's in your life or how exactly uh, do you use
1: that? Yeah, yeah, no, that's I, I, I try not to do it too often. So you know, it's every couple, two, three, four months, something like that. Um, and yeah, I will ask a question. Um, I will say that when I was doing it before, um, I would have much more specific questions, and now it's pretty much always the same question. And I feel like I'm just looking for an update. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess it really fits into what you would call a spiritual practice. It's a, it's a realigning, um, of, of, you know, what I'm doing, what I need to be looking out for, what to make of what has happened, you know, recently and the sort of the pattern of my life. Uh, what are some subtexts and subconscious things going on that I might not be paying attention to? And maybe I need to, um, what not so much trying to figure out like what my uh what my goal appears to be based on how i'm doing things and whether or not that's actually the right goal or if i should be pointing in a little bit different direction so it's yeah it's very much like a realigning process um and it's feels akin to for me to going reading a tarot for myself feels akin to like if some incredibly wise but very eccentric and strange man lived in my neighborhood and he occasionally let me go see him that's that's what it feels like and I just kind of go in there and he tells me a bunch of strange things and I kind of have to walk away and digest them for several weeks
0: everybody should have that right no (laughs) one should have a strange old man that lives in their neighborhood
1: yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and he just invites you over like it's not even invites you over. like every once in a while you're just sort of allowed to come through and maybe you get to pick a book off his shelf, ask him a couple questions and then he sort of curmudgeonly makes you leave. Yeah, that's what the tarot that's that's what the tarot feels like for me. and I always get something I always get like a nugget or two that 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 remind me of something you know I should be doing or I have fallen short of doing or you know some direction in which I need to be carrying stuff for sure.
0: So. Do you have any other favorite cards or cards that you've felt like personally uh, identified with or anything like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, I, I suppose there's a handful and they, they kind of change, they, they sort of change um, on a somewhat regular basis. I mean, there's ones that resonate for me personally. Um, one right now that I'm thinking about a lot, and this is probably the one I'm going to write my next little piece on, is the um, the Eight of Pentacles. Um it's a card about um, you've got this figure in the Rider-Waite-Smith deck. Anyway, you have sort of got this figure who's, who's carving the coins himself by hand. And it looks like maybe he's hung up the ones that he's finished. And it's about very much just chipping away, not paying. He's not looking around at his surroundings. He's just making the next thing. Um, And so that's kind of resonating with me now, because I've been in a very productive phase for the last several months. Um, And, Whenever you start getting, whenever I start getting productive, I start uh, getting curious about what the results are going to be, and this is a reminder to just know you just keep chipping away. So that one, that one is big for me right now, and it has come up other times in my life. Um, in terms of a major Arcana card, there's a, uh, well, I wanted to talk about. Uh, no, never mind. I was gonna say I would talk about the death card, but I don't wanna talk about the death card. I do want to talk about I was gonna about... say uh because you said like, well, you got the hanged man,
0: yeah, uh, and then the next card is the death card. Right. And so then on the numbers, we're going from 12 to 13. Right. And right. there's that like 13 as an unlucky number or as a lucky number. I think I've actually heard both of those things. Yeah, I've heard both. Of you. And there I've is like a there is this thing about uh its relation to like the Templars something to do with like Friday the 13th is like when they were condemned or
1: something like that. And that's right. That has survived in like Masonic lore and things like that. Interesting. So the the Templars, I would like to think that they like made a curse on humanity on that day or something. Yeah. There's some kind of
0: curse that's supposed (laughs) to be involved with that. Um, But my understanding with the death in tarot card and tarot is that, you know, it's, it's really just a transformative yes Uh,
2: yeah that's
1: that's that's i think the the i think that's the well so here's here's i think in a normal reading i think there's two aspects of it that are worth considering so one is yeah some new a new beginning um to me it's significant that that new beginning be i hate to use this word but it's the only one i can think of traumatic in some way yeah trauma is like kind of a buzzword now the trauma can be anything that's just jolting and disruptive, right? It's, it's something in which you can't go back past. It's a Rubicon being crossed some significant change. So ultimately it can be good depending on what you make out of it, but it is a little, it is a little death. Right. Um, And you can think about this too. Like there are a thousand little deaths in, in the world. Like, um, uh, there was, um, so I've been thinking about, uh, the art of darkness show we're doing, right. We've got um, an episode that we, we had done not that long ago on Franz Kafka. And I remember thinking about how I never would get to read that stuff again for the first time. Mm. So in reading something like that, so you come across anything that is wonderful, right. A positive, there is something that dies in you by integrating that because you can no longer go back to, before you had experienced that there's really no way to do that so that's a kind of death as well but i think also in a reading you know there used to be a thing that people did and sometimes i guess people do do it now maybe more subconsciously where you would have a memento mori right you would carry something with you or have something nearby that reminded you that you were going to die and while there's something morbid about that there's also something very clarifying about that it's it's a no BS thing that you're only gonna be here for so long, even if you believe in afterlifes and or and or reincarnation or whatever, this one is going to end. Um, and so I think the card in the read in, in a reading can be a good reminder of that as well. Well, it's um, a very hardcore looking card. It's very metal. It's- it is it is the most metal of it's the like cars, a skeleton sure. on a horse with like a yeah. flag or a side yeah. yeah and depending on the deck there's like heads on the ground and you know yeah, yeah it looks it's, like it's, the end of a war it does absolutely absolutely yeah it's it's a little it's a little frightening you know um my my wife and i um we uh we just got well we got married at the beginning of covid and then we we actually had our reception just recently and our all of our um our uh seat assignment cards right were tarot cards so we kind of just did it randomly um and so you'd get your seat assignment card and you were also kind of given a tarot card at the same time right and uh what that a cool debate. idea yeah it was it worked pretty cool and it led to some cool chats and things right um but i i really struggled with like are we gonna put the death card in there or the devil in there like do i want like you know my wife's grandmother to get like the death card accidentally you know we had... <laughs> so we'd ended up taking them out but like right but, but yeah they're they're if you're not willing to if just aesthetically that card is intimidating and scary and I've flipped it for people in readings and had them look very concerned right and you have to yeah. kind of like take them through what's actually going on you know with this isn't forecasting your future that you're, I mean, I guess you are going to die eventually. So maybe it is, but
0: (laughs) yeah. Do you think like tarot readers, do they like kind of overcompensate because it's such a, you know, it's such a scary looking card that they have to be like, it's not necessarily literal. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think
1: beginning. Right. I think that's part of Part of it. I think, I think there is, I think we're trying to go easy a little bit and you know make it so it's not so scary whereas in some readings anyway it's probably like listen you got to remember you're going to die and you don't get to mm-hmm. do this forever right like i i think it's i think oftentimes it's playing more of that role in a, in a reading and makes more sense narratively um but that's a lot that's a lot for anybody to just be told or to talk about or to think about you know yeah. it's it's not it's not easy so yeah well, i think we know, i think I we sugarcoat
0: I, the older I get, the I, the more I'm an advocate of people thinking about this. And I'm not, I had some flirtations in my youth of like thinking I was like a nihilist or mm-hmm. or something like that. But, um, and, you know, I think that's, that was mostly like posturing. Yeah. I've definitely, I've kind of gone around to the being the opposite of like almost like being you know, too self-helpy and positive thinking, but mm-hmm. because I think that's really important in order to be able to do anything yeah. uh, worthwhile too. But at the same time, I I think our culture um, tries to hide death a little too much or deny it. Yeah, and I agree. I in the last year and a half, I've probably thought more about death than I ever have. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, because of the pandemic that right. that hit us mm-hmm. but then also um early this year my grandfather died oh so yeah, um, that will
1: that will bring it to mind for sure right you could start yeah. to meditate on it absolutely yeah
0: and I, I i talked about this a little bit on twitter so i don't mind i don't mind talking about it mm-hmm. i traveled to the small town that i grew up in because they my grandparents like still lived there right and my family traveled and we as uh my uncles and my cousins uh were pallbearers and we um the the, the grave was um dug but we bur- we buried him like our family shoveled oh. the dirt wow and wow we tamped it down right. and we stood on top of his grave and it was I can't really describe that experience exactly, yeah. but when you're standing on top of the earth and your grandfather is underneath you, that's as big
1: a memento mori about as you're gonna get. Yeah, I right, think. Right. Right. No, I got goosebumps you telling me that, and it feels like, it feels like in the sanitation we've done of the whole process that you know what you what you and your family did is much more akin to to what people did for centuries, right? Mm-hmm and well, they would have the dead body in their home. Right, right, right. Yeah, you're dealing with it and interacting with it and then you bury it and then you yeah, yeah and then you stand over it and it was, and it was very powerful f- in a way that I I actually recommend. I think people should yeah. do this. Um, so
0: Yeah,
1: anyway. I, yeah, no, I that sounds that sounds absolutely right to me. Yeah. I mean, you don't you're not going to get you can't pre- you shouldn't pretend or around it or avoid around it or do anything to to look away from it. In my opinion, from, from loved ones dying and things like that. I, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think it does you any good. I don't think it does their memory any good. Um, I think, I think you gotta, I think you gotta feel the feelings. I mean, that's maybe a self helpy way of talking about it, but I think I actually, I agree. I think it's really no, important. That's just right. You, you have to feel, them. you have to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, and with other people too. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, we have a, we have a sort of a perverse kind of thing going on, you know, we definitely are clinging to life and clinging to youth. And I I think there's, there's some wisdom to be gained by, by being a little bit more accepting of it, the fact that it's going to happen, you know.
0: Yeah. And my family is uh, very religious and mm-hmm. um, I, I've probably in my life been like the lone uh, skeptic out of the group, but uh, okay. um, they, you know, there's no doubt in everybody's mind that he's not like gone, like his soul is right. gone to a better place and yeah, yeah that doesn't, uh, the, 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 everybody still feels the death, you know?
1: Right. That doesn't, yeah, that doesn't alleviate the grief, right? Like yeah. when I was very young going through my militant atheist phase, I thought, well, why aren't, why aren't they all happy? Cause they're the person that has passed away is going to heaven. Like it, to me, it felt like a, a good argument that, that um, people who Christians and things didn't actually believe What they stated to believe, and then as I've gotten older, it's obviously that's that's a ridiculous thing. I mean, it's it's a both and situation, right? It's yeah, you know, you're missing a person and
0: a misunderstanding of of time and transformation. Like, have you warned your childhood? Right? Mm -hmm. Like that's gone. Right. You don't Um, things can gone can be gone even as they continue. Like you're the Mm -hmm. same person as you were as a child, but you're not a child anymore.
1: That child is in a sense gone yeah yeah absolutely and that's and that's sad that's sad actually that even if you had the most remarkable childhood imaginable that's still there's a pang of sadness to that right there's there's a yeah you lost it there's a little bit of grieving that goes on i think most people in their 20s go through a sort of grieving of their youth phase maybe even older than that yeah yeah and i think that's normal and natural for sure yeah. It does make me think about are you familiar with this term. I think it's from uh, uh, I think it came from like the Illusinian mysteries of, uh, originally, which is uh, uh, he who dies before he dies, when he dies, does not die. Have you yes. heard this phrase before? Yeah. 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 That's, I think about that a lot and I think about that in a couple of ways. I mean, one is I think, you're supposed to sort of like a, from a philosophical standpoint, I think it's important to, to try and prepare yourself for that moment when you do expire. Right. So that you can, you can go with some manner of grace. You know, I would hate to live my whole life and do all these things and try to get better as a person and think through things. And, and then at that last moment, just be filled with dread and panic. Like that seems, that seems awful to me. Yeah. 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 So, so I think that by culturally by like hiding it and sanitizing it, I think we actually are preventing our own ability to sort of grow into a, I was going to say a healthy death, but that sounds very strange. (laughs) A a somewhat enlightened death.
0: Yeah, no, I think it is. I mean, healthy death is, I'm fine with it. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, Well, it's hard to it's hard to shift gears from the, the death conversation. Sure. I
1: know that's why I
0: almost <laughs> wanted to skip the card, but that was I think I think that was good. <laughs> but any other cards or or um or like do you have anecdotes or experiences that related to specific cards that you want to talk about?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um let me think. So uh well I I wrote about um I wrote about this one a little bit. Um and maybe this will help us transition to something else I think you wanted to talk about. So, um, one of the most potent cards that I've spent like a lot of time thinking about and reading about and dealing with is, um, the high priestess and the the high priestess is, uh, uh, she's the first in the fool's journey Fool's the major icon of the fool's journey. She's the first, um, female character figure that shows up and she sort of serves as this, um, among other things, a, 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 sort of guardian of the unconscious. Um, and you know, this maybe ties together a few things that, that we've talked about, you know, in the reading from the house of sleep, I talked about the mind being an ocean. Well, the high priestess sits at the shore of a sea, you know, uh, basically guarding it, um, and maybe serving as a membrane between it and you, you know, this feminine, this feminine figure, um, And that card, anytime that card comes up for me, it is a strong reminder that I haven't maybe I haven't been paying attention to, or I need to pay attention more to what's going on below my cognitive processes, what is going on in my dreams, what's going on in my moods, what's going on with my intuition, and all of that, and reminding myself that there are like, your conscious thinking, type A mind is really just the surface level of all these other, all these, excuse me, all these other processes. So I I love that card and it's worth reading. um, It's worth reading multiple interpretations of that.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would you say she sort of governs the unconscious then? Yeah. I think, I
1: think that's, that's sort of her. Yeah. I think, I think that's it. I think it's interesting that it's, uh, I think it's interesting that it's feminine um, because well, there's a whole sort of hermetic thing about masculinity and femininity. That's always like difficult for people to talk about right now, but, but there is something about it being, um, a more, uh, a more nurturing. She's sort of, she's sort of looking over the subconscious, nurturing it to some extent and allowing certain things to pass f- back and forth. And maybe something happens. And as a cr- person who's trying to be a writer, You know, maybe something happens in your life and then an experience or something you saw or heard, and it passes through that membrane, it passes through the high priestess, goes and lives in the subconscious or the unconscious for a while. And then, after it gets to gestate in that place, then you've got to sort of give birth to it by bringing it back out into the world in a piece of writing or a piece of art, right? So, I think for any creative person who's involved in an artistic process, understanding the, symb- the symbology of that card can be can be really important I think it's mimicking some actual processes that happen that happen in pe- in people's minds
0: yeah that's great yeah um so I gather from I, I did read that piece that yeah. uh, I gather this is um you're kind of describing a, a psychedelic trip was this uh yeah ayahuasca
1: or was this uh yeah that was a, that was um an ayahuasca. Well, maybe that bit of writing was an amalgamation of a few ayahuasca experiences, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that seemed like the right card um, to, to talk about that process a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, for, uh, you know, for people who are interested and in, some people are fascinated by this, some people have never heard of it, and some people just think it's kind of crazy. But um, ayahuasca, so I've sat in... A number, I'll just say a number of ayahuasca ceremonies, um, over the years. Um, and, you know, there are a number of aspects to it. It's, it's, it's part of house of sleep is inspired by the social dynamics of those ceremonies. Um, just, you've got people sitting in a room sharing an experience. Um, you kind of close yourself off from the world very temporarily for, you know, two or three days or a little more, um. And you have these shared these deep experiences that are, to a certain extent, shared. Um, And, you know, you're engaging in this medicine that that has been being used for thousands of years, primarily in in South America, though there are intimations of other cultures in Europe and the Middle East, maybe having come come across something chemically very similar. yeah. I don't, it's always tricky. I, I love talking about it, but I never know where to start. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's um, well, I've know, had some psychedelic experiences, okay. but have you, have you gone, have you managed to find ayahuasca in your travels? Uh, no, I mean, it's real. And it's not extensive
0: either. It's mainly related to uh, psilocybin mushrooms. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I, I will also say that it's not easy to talk about, yeah, all yeah. of it. Um, the so, but like, I kind of you know, in high, along with in in high school, when I was like getting into like modernist literature and all this difficult stuff, um, I was like learning about because you know, again, I grew up like in a small town with like a religious conservative family, so it's not like I grew up with you know, finding my parents' Beatles albums or whatever and them talking right. about their drug experiences. Or, any of that stuff, you yeah, know, you
1: had to dig, dig for it,
0: huh? <laughs> that was not the culture, bit, right. and so <laughs> yeah. I, I like got into, I like sort of discovered this, like, you know, all the kind of beats and hippie stuff around the same time, and so I was like, oh, uh, I, well, I read Aldous Huxley's yeah. uh, Doors of Perception after I read Brave New World, right? So that was my yeah. intro. Yeah, and, that got a lot of that
1: got a lot of kids. Ugh. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Over many decades too. And yeah, I, I yeah. now have very complicated ideas about Huxley and what he was about, but, and yeah. that's going to, I'll discuss that a little bit in the next Force of Symbols episode as well. Oh, okay. Great. Um, but, um, you know, uh, the thing about Huxley as opposed to Leary is that Huxley definitely like, uh, well, not it's not exactly true because they kind of both did talk about, they, they presented it in like a religious Uh, way as as a religious experience right Mm -hmm. and so it kind of primed me to expect that right and yet the context in which I actually ended up doing it was not like that at all Mm -hmm. Uh, and so my results I think were a little bit equivocal Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe a little disappointing um, primarily because in this country you know you're going to encounter drugs
1: through you know like you're at a party and your friend has some drugs, right? Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, that's how most people come to it for sure. I mean, that's how my first, exp- all my first experiences were made. Maybe. You and know, yeah. you know, the first time I did mushrooms, I
0: actually like split them with a friend that I brought with me. Cause they were like, Oh, you, you didn't tell us you're bringing a friend. You, he can do some, but you got to split your dose. Right. So I did. And it's probably good that I did because they mm-hmm. were incredibly powerful and Ooh, everybody okay. who had done them that had experienced them before also said that these were incredibly powerful, right? Right? right. Um, so, <laughs> um, yeah, I so you Got maybe you dodged a bullet there, or maybe yeah. not. Yeah. Um, so anyway, and so I'm kind of interested in this, uh, the ayahuasca ceremony because that, that, that you know, they talk about set and setting, the set and setting is, yeah, totally different,
1: yeah, yeah, and, and it's interesting. and I'm, I'm glad you brought up that context because those, the, the. the context of many of my first experiences was very much like, all right, well, I guess we're going to hang out and do this. (laughs) Right. And, um, uh, but my ayahuasca experiences, the ceremonies that I've been a part of, um, you know, there's a a lot of argument about lineage and the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it. And I'm not super interested in, in the, the, that necessarily, but, um, the group I had sat with did come from a, tradition and a sort of a lineage, um, from, from South America, um, you know, they learned how to, the, the ayahuascaro had learned how to make, um, they make his brew down in South America and had studied with teachers down there for years and then brought up, um, these traditions and ways of doing things and songs. The music is hugely important. And, you know, you sit with a group of people and, and, um, there are kind of rules about what to do, right? About, uh, and maybe not even rules, but there are sort of customs within this, within this mestizo tradition of, of, of partaking in ayahuasca of, you know, how you sit and where you sit and who, when you drink and what happens before everyone drinks and what happens after everyone drinks and what songs are played when, and, um, you know, what, um, steps are taken to make sure that, um, uh, bad you know bad spirits don't come into the room and how does the Iowa scarrow manage to maintain a container for all of these and it's all taken um it's all taken just the right amount of serious in my opinion um because <laughs> yeah. you can take it too serious and then it starts to be alienating for people right um but it's not that it feels like we're we're you know feels like it's all kind of done toward an end um and because of that it creates a it, it, it made me anyway, have religious experiences, um, that I had never really had before. And, you know, changed uh, a lot of things from, you know, my cosmology to my, uh, my, uh, my, my nutritional habits, you know, from all from top, top to bottom, um, because of that. Um, and, yeah. I mean, it takes you to some, how specifically would you say,
0: uh, well, yeah. let's go with, let's go with, uh, nutrition habits first.
1: <laughs> oh, well, yeah. So, uh, you know, I guess I was, I ate fairly, I ate fairly well before that. I mean, I'm a reasonably healthy person, but, um, it did, um, my, any, Tendency to overindulge in things has mostly gone away um, after ayahuasca experiences. So, I definitely had phases where I drank too much. I don't think I had really a problem, but I, you know, I could throw them back. Um, and I, you know, I was the kind of person where anything that was indulgent, once I started, I kind of had to go until it was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of after ayahuasca, that sort of went away. I, I don't really. I max out at about two drinks now <laughs> it, through no conscious effort. It seems like it sort of just shut some indulgent part of me down a little bit. Um and why
0: would you say that changed? Is it an attitude that you have now that is different or
1: yeah, I think um there is something that came well, okay, so I'll get a little bit personal. Um because I don't know I was trying to avoid it and and I'm happy to get a little personal I guess one thing that the ayahuasca experience um, helped me to understand was the own narrative the narrative that I had about myself that i was carrying around um and it showed me what that narrative was or the narrative about myself was and it actually in the experience I actually saw this narrative travel back through my father and grandfather almost like a almost like a like a old yarn that was handed down right it came to me and it was this sense this feeling that i was worthless and ayahuasca helped me to see that that was the narrative i carried about myself and if something is worthless you don't mind degrading it mm. right yeah um and as i worked out of that narrative i i did it just made less sense i guess it sort of make saying it made less sense makes it sound like it wasn't even literally a conscious decision i just had less of a tendency to degrade myself as i unpacked that narrative that i had right so it's like well i'm not going to degrade it because it's i don't i don't degrade stuff that i think has value so it kind of works you know sort of in an oblique manner like that and then one day you realize you're like huh you know. I haven't gotten actually drunk this year, you know, it's like, huh, that's weird. That's never happened before.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I can totally see how that would happen because I do think a lot of these things, uh, you know, I know that there's such a thing as chemical dependence and whatnot, but I know Mm -hmm. that I think a lot of the things that we do um, habitually uh, do come out of a narrative, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm doing this thing because I believe I'm the type of person that
1: does this thing. Right. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. And I think my, you know, there were probably a time when I was young when I thought like drinking a lot was cool or something. And maybe you know, relative to other people, maybe it is cool when you're 19. I don't know what's cool, but it's not that cool when you're like 35. No. Yeah. <laughs> I know that for a fact. Significantly so. less cool. Yeah. Than... Right. <laughs> yeah. So so it's, it 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 works. The the experience can have these very. Uh, you don't really know what you're going to get into when you go into these into these experiences. And it's really important to have people around you who are willing to give you the space to have these experiences. I mean, 75% of the people who are going to go in there are going to throw up in public. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so just to make that okay is a certain sort of a certain sort of space. Right.
0: Well, this is why it's so problematic to do it in like a party environment. I, I yeah, just, I can't,
1: I can't imagine even trying to do it in a party environment.
0: It's too, it's too chaotic and it can yeah. get too um personal. I mm-hmm. uh so I had not the f- first time, but a later time of doing mushrooms. Mm-hmm. I I was with the, the same friend, a close friend, uh, one of my best friends and um he was going through some personal uh hardships at the time. Mm-hmm. But uh we were He decided to do this with me and a group of other people anyway and when they started kicking in um i got the thing that always happens early on which is just the wave of giddiness where everything is like really like hilarious right (laughs) like cartoon in like a cartoon way right right um and I couldn't, I could not help this. This is like a roller coaster. I strap myself in and the ride is going. Like, right. I'm not going to not be like this. Mm-hmm. And so, but what happened to him is that he started crying oh. because he was like not escaping the situation that he was in. He was like, like you were saying, like revealing what the narrative was or what you know, he was going through one of those things. Mm-hmm. and I just, I actually, he had to actually go into a room and be alone. Yeah. And I yeah. had to not be
1: around him, even though I like, didn't like, I felt terrible about that. Right. Right. Could, and I you cared, and but yeah, you weren't in a, you weren't in a space that you were going to be the person that was going to help him. Right. Yeah, yeah. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's, that's, that's pretty common. And th- that's another thing. that's really interesting about the ayahuasca ceremonies is you have a person who's administering it and then you'll have, a handful of other, um, helpers who are just kind of there, um, for as small things as helping you get, you know, get to the bathroom, if you need to go to, you know, anything that comes up. And I think if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna take a high dose of the most powerful psychedelic known to man, um, it's good to have somebody around, (laughs) I would say, so. well, so, okay. Ayahuasca that's chemically the same as DMT or is DMT like a derivative of that? Or yeah, so, so what, um, so DMT dimethyltryptamine is, um, it's generally not orally active. Um, so people who just do DMT, they will have a crystallized form and they will smoke it or vaporize it in some way. Um, ayahuasca, um, the reason it's not orally active is your stomach will break down DMT, um, using uh, monoamine oxidase so it'll break it down before it like gets into your bloodstream what ayahuasca has with the with the the people in south america who sort of came up with this figured out was that if they brewed the leaves of the chacruna and the vine of the ayahuasca vine basically what they would get is a natural monoamine oxidase inhibitor um, and DMT at the same time, it's basically turning it into an orally active drug. So people who smoke or vaporize DMT, they're doing the same thing as ayahuasca. Ayahuasca just takes, um, it lasts much, much, much longer, like by an order of magnitude longer. Because of the way it's like metabolized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, some people claim that um, smoking or vaporizing it, you go further, but it doesn't obviously doesn't last as long. Um, I think there's an argument to be made for that, but um but uh yeah, so you know so they were able to turn it into like a five hour experience basically oh wow. um yeah i yeah, I have to imagine that adds to the kind of re- religious or transformative nature of it if it lasts that long yeah, you get to you get to go through some things <laughs> you get ups and downs and 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 sideways is <laughs> so yeah. yeah, and so kind of a story gets to develop about it and and um and, you know, there's a, the purging aspect of it too, which I think is actually pretty important to the long-term sort of psychological or spiritual help that it provides. I think the purging is actually significant. Um, your mats, you know, that's your body just trying to get rid of something, you, something nasty that you drank, right? But it, it turns into its whole own thing. Um, in, you know, imagine being extremely nauseous knowing you're going to throw up, but also at the same time, just being incredibly under the influence. Right. It's, 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 and, and there are many stories of people who, you know, throw something up into the bucket and it's like, they threw up spiders into the bucket or they threw that's the experience they yeah. had. Right. They threw up a bucket of worms and like, yeah. it's very intense. Um, But I think it's actually an important part of the process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what, I'll tell you why, because why, uh, it's interesting. I think you start to get nauseous, right. And then you start to assign, because one thing that ayahuasca does is it makes everything seem like it has more, has meaning. Right. So um, everything has like everything that happens or you see you experience, it seems like it has meaning like a sentence in a book that must have a meaning to it. Mm-hmm. And so you get this nausea in your stomach and what it was like for me is I started assigning identities to that nausea it's this or it's that it's um uh you know it's my anger at so and so it's my um fear of such and such and that nausea builds and because you've assigned this meaning to it you're working on it right you're like thinking about why am I angry why was I afraid why was I this why was I that and then eventually you get to purge it, and it feels like you actually got rid of it physically. Like it feels like it's gone from your psyche. I see. So it's pretty. It's pretty. It's pretty powerful. That so, has some obvious therapeutic, uh, right,
0: implications. Yeah. 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 So uh, it's interesting because uh, you know I've I've encountered, and I'm sure you have as well, uh, being the world that it is of on twitter yeah uh some tr- trad religious people yes. um and you know uh some of these guys are really quite brilliant uh mm-hmm. and um but some of them have uh it, well okay i even know that uh and i don't know all of his views but like owen cyclops that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. yeah as kind of like talked about uh, the negative, negative, negative aspects of psychedelics. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of taken a bit of a stance against them. I, I, yeah. from what I gather. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I guess like the general take is sort of like, basically you're, you're opening a portal for demons to uh, <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: encounter.
0: And, just- and it sounds like, um, you know, the context in which you do this, the people would pro- who are like doing the ceremonies would probably, agree up to a point where they say well yes and that's why we have you know x and y um
1: procedures that we do to deal with that yeah yeah i would agree i think i think you can invite demons in with it i mean depending on how metaphorical you want to be like you know i yes i think you can invite demons in with it. <laughs> yeah for sure and so yeah I, I don't disagree with those guys on that i, I think it's um I don't think you, I don't think the demons have to come in or, um, I don't, you know, I also think, um, sometimes it's a demon that you actually need to fight. Right. We, you know, we'll even say, it's funny. We don't, we don't think about it, but we'll say, we'll talk about somebody who has problems and we'll be like, yeah, he's got, that guy's got some demons. Right. And we think of it as just like a thing you say, but like, I think it's actually, functionally effective to take that phrase seriously like to treat it as though it were true that that person has demons and maybe it is actually true on some metaphysical level maybe not but Mm. i think it actually works as a phrase so it might be that you actually need to bring in bring out your own demons in order to deal with them right right and that can be dark and scary and horrible. And then you might wake up in the morning sweating for the, for happy for the first time you've been happy in a year, you know, well, I also think alcohol is a good portal to demons as well. Uh, yeah. So, right, right. Exactly. Yeah. I've seen some people, I I've seen that's... some people become possessed on alcohol. That's for sure. Yeah. 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 So yeah, you kind of watch out for demons no matter what you do. All right. So let's, uh, yeah, let's get into some of your, your
0: fun ayahuasca stories.
1: Yeah. And so I think, I think some of these will also relate to people a little bit more what the experience is like too. So, um, so one thing in that, in that, one thing that you, in an ayahuasca space that's worthy of taking serious and then understanding whether it works for you is, 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 is how important the idea of plant spirits are in that world. Um, the, the notion is that the, ayahuasca is um is a feminine spirit that's often referred to as grandmother ayahuasca um and it's a figure that people claim to see i feel like i have seen it and interacted with it um and but what you learn through these ayahuascaros and people is that all plants have a spirit um and so there's other plants that are important in that tradition and uh you know, tobacco, for instance, is one that's really powerful in that tradition, but there's a whole host of others. Um, But I had uh, one evening I had, um I tend to um, run late in those experiences. So I, I'm I'm still having the experience after most people have kind of finished or are, are tapering down for whatever biological reason. Mm-hmm. And so I was having a very intense experience and the ceremony proper was sort of over and we're kind of hanging out on the porch and I'm, I'm sort of I'm sort of having a weird time <laughs> and, and uh, um, somebody said suggested to me that I should eat eat something and the only thing that seemed palatable was a banana right now again I'm, I'm deep in this plant spirit world, where it does seem like plants mean something like i'd had an experience earlier earlier that night with a cedar tree i actually still have like the dried leaves from that or the dried needles from that cedar tree because i felt like i had this relationship with the cedar tree for about five minutes um but anyway so I'm, I, I eat this banana <clears throat> um now i'm sure you know that bananas that you buy at the store are all clones have you heard this yeah. Yeah. So they're not they're they're not like most plants that are a bunch of different plants. <laughs> they're all genetically identical to each other. So I eat this banana. And again, mind you, I'm very much in under the influence of the medicine. And I immediately have this experience of banana plant entered spirit. Now <laughs> so again, they're clones. They're not these individuals. Every banana is the same genetically. Yeah. And what the experience was for me is do you remember the old um dire straits music video like one of the first music videos the money for nothing and your chicks for free or whatever yeah Yeah. so all of a sudden eating this banana my vision is taken over by that like that aesthetic right like blocky cgi yeah right and then i have like a little bit of a banana figure but it's all bananas at once talking to me because they're all clones and instead of it being like granting me some wisdom since they're clones and they've been degraded they're kind of stupid and so the bananas all of the bananas in existence for a second are just like hello i'm a banana <laughs> how are you like i'm
0: hearing the riff from that song by the way right, my- right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so for like five minutes i've my experience was interacting with like a stupid banana spirit that was also every banana in the world at the same time very very bizarre <laughs> and, and to me was absolutely hilarious That's great. um yeah and so you sort of have those kinds of like those kinds of experiences and then like i don't know if this one is so much as funny as like kind of telling of what it's like um one thing they the people who lead these ceremonies always tell us to do is like if you're not like really under the effect right what you should do is just try and concentrate on helping other people not by actually doing anything just pay attention to them and like send positive energy their way right and the one night um there was a guy who was sitting next to me sort of kitty corner from me um, who was having a very difficult time, he was crying a lot, and just having a hard time. And we found out later that he he had nearly died from an illness as a child that had like laid him up for months. And he was sort of revisiting that and kind of dealing with some stuff he hadn't dealt with around that. And um, I had for a while hadn't really been feeling it. So I just sat there and I had concentrated on him. I was just like, I hope he gets through this. I like this guy. I didn't know him that well, but I was like, I like this guy. I hope he gets through it. I'm just sending him positive vibrations, all that. And in my head, I'm like, this doesn't do anything. This is just me bored. I don't have anything else to do until the medicine kicks in or whatever. Uh And the next day, the next morning, he came to me at breakfast and he's like, dude, thank you so much. I don't know how I would have got through that night if you hadn't just been sitting there, like sending me vibe, sending me energy. And that was, that was actually, I think the second time I ever sat ceremony and I did not know what to do with that information. Right. Like I, I still don't really know exactly what to do with that information that, you know, clearly this guy had, he in some way had felt what I was sending him. Right. Right. Yeah. Very, very intense. So yeah. it seems like,
0: um, what happens is whatever you're interacting with, you're, you're like, interacting with it on like kind of the essence of it i I, i'm Mm -hmm. avoiding i'm consciously avoiding the word spiritual because it's like an overused word yeah um and it doesn't necessarily like convey specific content right um but you know the banana soul was like this kind of dumb cheesy 80 video 80s right. soul right
1: yeah is yeah.
0: that like you're you're like entering into like kind of the deeper qualities of a thing when you interact with
1: it is that yeah 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 i think i think very much i think very much that's what's going on yeah yeah Usually, I, I, it, it's interesting too there's there's tobacco is important in that tradition and um uh wants to help me um get through the last bit and actually purge um a guy suggested that i just take um i i take smoke a little tobacco and as soon as he said that and he told me it would make me purge i didn't even smoke tobacco he was smoking tobacco and i smelled a little bit of it and everything i was seeing turned gray and i immediately had the most physically complete purging of you know uh, 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 imaginable wow <laughs> it felt like everything came out of me and i don't know if it was the power of suggestion i don't yeah. know if the 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 quote-unquote plant spirit thing that's what it felt like was happening i don't know if that's a real thing mm. i'm not sure but yeah is a well everything turning gray that's like ash too right 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 yeah exactly and so and yeah uh ah. But it sort of—it felt like at the moment that it had saved my life, to be honest, because that's that's how much I was struggling to get this thing out of me. So, who knows? I, I found it interesting with uh, with mushrooms that um,
0: like it it affects the senses in different ways. Yeah. Like um, the visual sense, obviously, like your pupils are going to be so dilated, and you're just like taking in so much information through the visual field um and so everything is just like dazzlingly colored and it's like yes. everything has just like a light coming off of it going through it yeah and yet um and i guess some people get really fascinated with textures to like touch yep. uh, I yeah i didn't feel that quite as much but um th- i noticed when i listened to music it actually like kind of didn't do anything special Oh really? Which like I expected that because like I mean I think marijuana does that. That's kind of like the best thing about marijuana in right. my opinion. Right. Other, otherwise right. I'm like kind of not interested in smoking it uh, unless I'm yeah. like gonna like strap on headphones and listen to an album, yeah, a full album yeah. in the darkness, you know. Yeah. But um, but yeah, like it didn't like do anything special when people put on music because hmm. it's like everything I saw was like I don't know just the intensification of the visual field was, was incredible. And, and the quality of, of motion actually um, I felt like I sensed
1: every motion of everything, like everything moved too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand. I understand what you're saying. I do wonder how music would, um, so music is a big part of the ayahuasca experience and you actually, so I wonder how you, how that would work on you. They, you actually become basically synesthetic, Hmm. during while you're under the influence of it and it and part of it is we're sitting in a dark room but like um there was a song that um someone played and sang um and it's all like you pretty much do it like all live instrumentation right so it's kind of beautiful music um but there was i do recall a guy playing a song that this the the words to the song were just um he would name pairs of colors right? So he would just say red and gold. And he's singing this. I don't remember exactly how the song went, but he was naming these pairs of colors. And I will tell you, every time he named a pair, those two colors would kind of come into my field of vision and then they would slowly recede. And then the next pairs he would say would come into my vision and then recede. So he was like calling these colors into my eyes. And I know you can imagine them, but it didn't feel like that. It felt like they were being sort of brought up to me and then taken away. Um, and yeah, the music is the music is integral. In fact, like there'll be times in the ceremony where um, p- there's no music being played for several seconds, you know, just dead air. And then when the music starts up again, oftentimes someone will purge right then when the music starts back up. It's like int- it's ramping it all up just so this person can get over this last step, basically. Wow, it's very interesting to hear. It's <laughs> like silent, silent, silent. Music starts and then three people puke. Yes. <laughs> very weird yeah so yeah that's a i'll give you one more that's gives you the nature that that it can be funny sometimes there are a couple two i'll give you two that are sort of i feel like similar vein experiences that I had um one was i was very concerned i wanted to actually see um grandmother ayahuasca as they talk about so I was I felt in my my eyes closed and I was very much looking I wanted to see a, a feminine face and look for this thing that I'd been told that was was in there and I'm looking and looking and looking really hard and at some point I just had an image of like John Belushi's John Belushi's face come out and stick his tongue out at me and then disappear <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that like and it was sort of like stop looking for me um it was very very bizarre and then I also had another experience and then we can we can move on to some we can move on to uh, something else um but I think it's worth sharing and it was a good bit of wisdom that I got um very my maybe my first experience my second experience I very much was trying to intellectualize what was happening while it was happening right um, you know, tell myself well, this means that and this means this and this is happening because of this and, you know, looking to science and looking to philosophy and looking to psychology and whatever. And then I've got a very at some point doing this getting sort of OCD about trying to explain everything to myself. Um, the voice came a voice came through that just said, these are just words, man, what do you want them to do explain everything. And then, like that just shut down my whole intellectualizing process like after that I was able to just let go because I realized that I was trying to explain everything that was happening to me in crude English words and I've kind of carried that with me throughout me it's kind of a weird thing for a writer to think but I've kind of carried that path beyond where it's like yeah we're not going to always explain everything that happens there it's, it's a limited tool for sure that's great yeah 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 so
0: I mean I, I I love these stories because uh i I really do think that uh whatever force is out there you know governing the universe, if that's you know, it's mm-hmm. probably not the right word for it, but uh pretty
1: sure it has a sense of humor. it definitely it's does got to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely does, yeah, yeah, I think that's I think that's true. yeah, there's a cosmic joke in there someplace, yeah. Yeah. I remember, uh, the what. okay. One more. And then I promise we'll stop. So <laughs> I had, uh, once in the, in ceremony, I, I started to get a, a pretty significant headache at the back of my head. And I had never had that before. And it became this like negative self-talk thing where I was like, man, did I like, am I like causing myself brain damage? You know, like is doing this gonna hurt me like and i started thinking and thinking and then it was like maybe it's brain cancer you know and like you start getting weird and catastrophizing right Mm -hmm. and like thinking about this for a while about this headache and how maybe i hurt myself and maybe there's no going back and maybe this is just gonna get worse and blah 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 and so i finally like talked my way down into like just accepting that just like well if i did i did there's nothing i can do about it now right like i guess i just gave myself permanent brain damage And then as soon as I accepted it, the headache went away, and it's the experience, ayahuasca, spirit, whatever you want to call it, like, started laughing at me. And it was, like, that moment of, like, you ever get that trick played on you when you're a kid where somebody, like, points at something on your shirt, and you look down, and they flick you in the nose? Yeah. That's what it felt like. It was, like, she was just trying to get me to look at my own death, and then as soon as I did, she was, like, nah, I'm just kidding. You're fine. Like it was very strange it's a terrible thing to make a joke about but like yeah. whoa it was pretty intense pretty intense experience to have yeah very good so, okay. yeah adventures and adventures in uh the the plant spirit realm have been yeah. have been fascinating and so uh, and sometimes funny Uh, you got plans to do it again sometime yeah um that's kind of covid makes it a little challenging but that's starting to ease up um so yeah yeah um i think i I can't say when for sure but but coming up in the next year or two for sure yeah Yeah. cool um
0: yeah so uh i was wondering if you wanted to uh
1: say anything and it's fine if you don't uh, about uh what you're currently working on yeah i can i, I don't want to speak in too much depth because it sort of spoils it but i will sure. say a couple of things um i will say so I, I have a slug line written on my whiteboard and this keeps me keeps me focused right so this is basically what it's about um a disgraced professor must outwit a subterranean time demon if he is if he is ever to see his real family again. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah. So uh, it's it's uh, half of the book takes place, uh, and I'll give you a little bit more premise. The sort of Twilight Zone uh, premise: um, some people, some guys who work in sewers. They go down into the sewer to to do a day's work down there and when they come out they realize that they've essentially time traveled um and that so they you know they they end up basically in and out of the sewer trying to get their way back home um and and you know they have some dark and com- hopefully compelling adventures along the way um but it's fu- it's a fun it's a fun project so far um yeah it's dealing with a lot of like anthropological stuff and trying to not lean too hard on the the tropes of of most time travel work and trying to do something something fresh and cool and and uh and, and worthwhile with it so yeah that's about all i want to say about it otherwise i'll spoil the spoil the thing while it's cooking yeah no of course yeah um and everybody should read uh house of sleep before they. yeah yeah please i i'm so it it meant a lot to me that that you you liked it man so that was uh that was, that's been really cool yeah. trying to get in as many hands as possible and and uh and i'm glad i'm glad it found your, its way to yours so and so that was published um early this year is that right yeah i want to say january or february of this year yeah and that's um, when i really started taking social media kind of seriously i wasn't uh like you'll see on my twitter i've had an account since 2009 but if you were to actually scroll back i didn't really start tweeting until like middle of last year i think right (laughs) so um um, yeah the uh so
0: is this self-published or published through i'm looking at the
1: yeah it's 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 self-published yeah so i you know i just leaned on the the amazon uh whatever they're calling it now they've had different names for it through the years, but yeah, it's basically print on demand through, through Amazon. Um, yeah. I feel That's like there's going to be,
0: um, there's going to be a lot of that. And I, I'm kind of curious about like, whether the, just like the ability to do that. Um, I feel like, well, like with anything, like the, the fact that you can like make a blog or have a Twitter, it's going to have like both things happen where it's like, it's going to fill you know the the world with a lot of like pointless stuff but then at the same time it's gonna like give a voice to stuff that may not have gotten through the old um like gatekeepers and official channels for whatever reason right Um, and so it not get like kind of like a mini like renaissance of of interesting writers but you you have to find them like it's not gonna be thrown in your lap
1: yeah we're i I mean i'm seeing that right now i mean i'm participating in the i I, like delving into the hashtag writing community a little bit which is which is a lot of self-published folks and like there is some real talent out there but there's a lot of there's a lot of hack just like kind of publishing your first draft of stuff Mm -hmm. that so so there is there is something to be said for the imprimatur and gatekeeping process of traditional publishers for sure um but uh yeah i mean i tried real hard to get house of sleep published traditionally and just kind of couldn't get any couldn't get traction and decided that i was gonna like try to make my own traction um and you know so far so good i guess yeah but but you're right i'm hoping you know and maybe this is just uh sour grapes but like i'm kind of like screw the publishing industry i hope they die and uh (laughs) (laughs) We'll just create a whole new a whole new thing, Um, but I think there's always going to be attempts to try and find, uh, you know, ways to credentialism and and ways to put the stamp on things and 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 you know, verify to potential readers that it's a work of quality. So,
0: yeah, I mean, it ties into like kind of the loss of legitimacy of like every industry, (laughs) right? Internet age of. Newspapers are dying, but then everybody yep. like is like, well, you know, they deserve to because they right. formed this really like craven function of apologizing for you know the the status quo yep. and you know universities all the all the institutions are having these problems right and right. you can always say and and be right in saying that they deserve what they're getting right. Um, but at the same time the 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 opposite of that the the new you know uh wild west and it's not so much like that any as it used to be but right. of everybody you know like having instant access to expressing themselves that is not like a uh you know 100% uh gift to to the culture either yeah. so it's just like yeah. a trend it's just we're going into a new world like it it used to be the idea of a, like a self-published book they called it a vanity project right That right. already sounds outdated to me nobody believes yeah. that um everybody right. understands what you know um what it's like out there and uh that there's really quality stuff that people just have to like, oh, I just
1: have to self publish. This it's the only way. Right. Um, right. Right. Yeah. So, and you get, there's, there's, and the thing is there's plenty of models for how to do it in the music industry and in podcasts and all these things. And it's, you know, you gotta have reasonable, you gotta, you gotta think about it as though it's, you know, a SoundCloud album, <laughs> and, yeah. like how, how did, you know, how did whatever, I don't know any famous SoundCloud rappers off the top of my head, but how did they, you know, how did they get traction? And then you do, I think you can do a, a comparable thing in, in writing, so, sure. um, yeah, yeah. That's partially, uh, you know, the other thing I've got going on is is the Art of Darkness podcast, which which I think people, most people who have listened to it have really dug it so far. Um, and that's, you know, It's Kevin and I were partially trying to get a little bit of attention. We're both writers. He's a, he's an amazing playwright. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so part of it is trying to develop at some point he and I both said like, well, we're just going to have to do all this ourselves. Aren't we? Like in terms of getting out there in the world. And so art of darkness is another way we're doing that. These biographies of, of artists that, you know, most people know and love and every once in a while, somebody that we love and we hope the audience will love by the time we're done. Yeah, it's a fun yeah. podcast. I'm sure it's yeah. a, a lot of fun to to do
0: the research for too.
1: Yeah, it is. It feels like you know. It feels like we're giving ourselves our own little uh, art history degrees. You know, I figure by the time we we crank out a couple hundred of these, um, I'm gonna have a pretty good grip on the currents and history of various artistic movements and that sort of thing. So it's cool on that regard. You know, it's always learning and learning and making new connections. Yeah.
0: Yeah, um, it's kind of like this is what I love about uh, doing research is you never know where that's going to lead you because everything ties into everything at at some point, and so right. Um, right. that's why I have my uh, one of the quotes on my Twitter account is uh, Charles Ford's, uh quote: "One measures a circle by beginning anywhere." Right. Um, right, and that's what the world is. The world is a circle. And it so is. It yeah. just
1: begins somewhere and keep going. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, I love I love that quote and 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 yeah, i i absolutely agree yeah you just you just start it's yeah you can go anywhere we're finding in our darkness we we're always surprised that like the people we do like there's often like one degree of separation between them and another person that we did an episode on that you wouldn't expect you know it's always like huh so they were okay i guess the world is smaller than i thought yeah 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 it's interesting all right. So let's, uh, let's move on to the lightning round.
0: Let's do it. I, yeah. uh, I think I explained this uh, yeah. to you before. I'm just going to go through uh, some artists here and you can give me a quick rundown. I've already scratched okay. off some of you. Cause
1: we, uh, we mentioned them, but uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's do it. This sounds, okay. this sounds fun. Ernest Hemingway. Oh, he's, he's the man. Uh, y- you know, he, uh, he scraped off every, every uh little bit of style so we could all start over again yeah we all everybody writing now is was a lot to Ernest hemingway for sure
0: i'm way more familiar with his short stories mm-hmm. uh i have read the sun also rises but that's the only novel of his
1: yeah yeah i read um the one that i really liked the novel i really liked was farewell farewell to arms okay. um yeah it's just a beautiful i mean it's it's a beautiful little love story you know it's not anything fancy but oof, he knew how to make you feel things in as few words as possible so okay. yeah so we we did mention him but uh William Faulkner yeah William Faulkner I'm learning a lot about William Faulkner right now I see I come down on the William Faulkner in the Faulkner versus Hemingway debate like rivalry um just because I I'm more I gravitate more towards stylists and I think Ernest or sorry faulkner could write was capable of writing the most outlandish beautiful crazy intense sentence possible right i think he had i think he could i think he was the sentence writer par excellence Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i i I admire him a great deal um i'm also learning he's a bit of a he's got some things about his personality that i'm not a super big fan of now that i'm doing this episode uh, on art of darkness but um yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, he's a little, but he's not accessible, I don't think. I, I agree with the detractors who say it's not accessible. Absalom, Absalom is a hard book to read, I think. I got to get around to those uh,
0: like long, more excessive ones. I know, yeah. primarily, um as I lay dying, which is actually uh, like it does the stream of consciousness thing, but it's
1: based on the, these like fairly short chapters. Yeah. It's digestible for sure. Yeah. 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 Absalom, Absalom. You'd never even know what, what you like, it's hard to even know what year you're in. It's very <laughs> like, it's, you're not sure what ha- causality kind of breaks down. It's crazy, but it, he wow. also will have a, a paragraph that you're, is like, that's the coolest paragraph I've ever read. <laughs> so yeah. Pros and cons. Yeah. David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace was a uh, man. Very few celebrity deaths have affected me more than David Foster Wallace. It really bummed me out. I was a big uh, fan of his when I came across Infinite Jest in like 2007 or eight. Um, I think his short stories are even more effective. I think the sincerity and the, the uh, obsessive nature of him was really something else. I also think people should stop trying to uh, imitate him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and maybe they have stopped i don't know but it seems yeah. in my experience it seemed like a lot of young writers were trying to write like david foster walls right yeah it seems like the most influential people are often like the worst influences too right <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah. yeah yeah so he it was like he, was, he did a thing that only he could do really so it's like hey, go find the thing that only you can do i guess yeah yeah uh well we actually i think you did briefly mention but jonathan franzen yeah jonathan franzen's uh since i have like a little personal moment with him this one was not as extensive as maybe some of the others um i think he's i think he's a genius i think though i think he i haven't read the i think he just had a book come out that i haven't read obviously freedom um Freedom kind of, in my opinion, starts to dis- disappear up its own butt at some point. But The the Corrections is, in my opinion, like top five novel of the last however many years since it came out. Um, I think it's brilliant and hilarious. And I think he's this stylistic totalitarian who, in that book anyway, who just was a master of his craft. So I admire him a lot. I think he... I think he might've got a little bit lost in the weeds for my own personal taste in, in later years, but Flannery O'Connor. Yeah. See Flannery O'Connor, I'm not as familiar with, and I need to get deep on her. So I don't have strong opinions uh, other than I feel very compelled because everybody tells me how great she is. And somehow she fell through the cracks for me. So
0: Yeah. I've read almost everything she wrote. Really? You know, New- where, do, where should I start? Um, I mean, you got to start with the short stories because that's what she was best at. Okay. Um, and so there's a handful. The one that always gets anthologized is a good man is hard to find. Okay. See, I may uh, have read that many years ago. Yeah. A yeah. good, okay. good Country People is another okay. one of my favorites. There's really not that many stories. So if you just pick okay. up a, a collection of her short stories and start getting into it, it's. Um, I would do that. Okay, um, she, she wrote two novels. They're both short The better one is Wise Blood. Okay, I've heard this. I've heard Wise Blood is quite good. Yeah, Yeah, Wise Blood is really good, and surprisingly, the movie that was made of Wise Blood is really good. Oh, really? I did not think that O'Connor would translate well to um, to the screen. Yeah, directed by John Huston, who directed The Maltese Falcon. Yeah, you know, uh, played Noah Cross on uh, in Chinatown. Um he, he did that quite well,
1: actually. Right. Huh. No, I will definitely. I I've I've been recommended uh Flannery O'Connor by enough people I respect that I've just got to do it <laughs> for sure. Uh Thomas Pynchon. Yeah, Thomas Pynchon is is he's I find him to be as a writer, he is the most intimidating other writer that I know about. Uh Gravity's Rainbow is just unbelievably smart and craft like put unbelievably well put together and nuanced and funny and so full of things you never thought or saw before i think gravity's rainbow is is a masterpiece um i haven't read i've read crying blot 49 which i think is also really good um but I, I haven't read anything have i read anything after gravity's rainbow i read mason dixon um which is also good but man once you've written once you've written gravity's rainbow it's like what else are you gonna do
2: <laughs> yep. in my
1: opinion it's sort of like uh, I, you're not gonna uh, in my, i don't even know if it would be possible to write a better book than that And that's one that's like i struggled reading it too it's it's one of the rare instances oh. of a book i had a hard time finishing but like but also at the at the same time really liked it yeah i most. failed
0: multiple times to get past um like the first part yeah of gravity's rainbow before yeah. I- when I finally did, then I went all the way through it.
1: Yeah. But. Yeah. I had to admit several times reading that on the first pass, at least I was like, oh, I, I just don't have any idea what's going on. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll just keep, I'll just keep going. And, and, and eventually it'll start to make sense. And it kind of did. You have to learn. You, it's almost, I felt like reading Pynchon is a little bit like a, a little bit like learning a foreign language, maybe not a f- total foreign language, but like a, it's like if you knew Spanish were trying to learn Portuguese, it's like, man, yeah. it, it, it's hard to, and then once you understand how everything's being done and sort of how the sentences are put together, you, you end up realizing that it's, it's
0: absolutely brilliant. Yeah. A couple of the later books I haven't read and I, I do mean to get around to them, but I could probably take his first three books and just read them over and over again. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And if you haven't read V yet, I think that that's. I haven't read V. I I hear that. That's excellent too. I want to read Inherent Vice just because I thought the film was great. It it is great. Yeah. 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 Looks pretty good too. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. It's a little Calvino. Yeah. So the only thing I've read by him is the um, On a Winter's Night of Traveler. Is that the right title? Yeah 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 um and i read that many years ago and I, it's probably something i need to revisit because i think i i think i understand a little bit more the kind of meta fictional qualities of it and i i i need to go i i'm about to after i'm done doing this faulkner reading i'm about to go another deep dive onto well somebody else you'll mention but <laughs> probably um, i'm about to go a deep dive on borges again and okay. i know that I i'm missing borges yeah, I know that Calvino is like this piece that I'm, I'm sort of familiar with, but sort of haven't fit into yet. So mm-hmm. I, I definitely need to I definitely need to get get in there. So uh, I, I actually haven't read this, but you might be
0: interested uh, to know if you don't that he wrote an entire novel based on the tarot.
1: I didn't know that It's called really? the
0: It's called The Castle of Cross Destinies I think
1: oh, It's in two okay.
0: parts And each part Is based on a Different tarot deck Oh wow Okay It's like Yeah I gotta read that Yeah it's like A <laughs> postmodern You know Take on the tarot I guess Yeah Something along those Interesting ones. Interesting I'll definitely Check that out Um huh. HP Lovecraft
1: Yeah uh, If she's allowed To like him Or is it racist Are you a racist <laughs> <laughs> um i uh i i learned something that's not what you him. like about him my yes part. yeah i <laughs> guess that's true yeah no I, I say that very tongue-in-cheek i i i like i i went into my first readings of h.p lovecraft expecting it to much more be like pulpy monster stuff and this is like before i really knew right mm-hmm. i just had seen an image and was like all right i'm gonna check this out And then I went in and kind of realized that he was doing almost what like Borges is doing. And -hmm. apparently I've heard that when they were selling HP Lovecraft in France, he was presented to the French reading public as basically a surrealist. And I found that interesting. Like if I apply a surrealist take to HP Lovecraft and just treat him as though that's the vein he's dealing in, I kind of like it. I, I start to like it more Um, and it makes more, he makes more sense to me because they feel like crappy monster movies until (laughs) that, that, or like the plot never really happens almost like, but once I've, I I kind of sort of adjusted the goggles I was looking at, I've really kind of fallen in love with, with his stuff in recent years. So yeah, I'm a definitely a Lovecraft fan. Interesting. I I almost kind of
0: like, um, I have this book called the dream cycle of H.P. Lovecraft Mm. and uh it kind of shades over into fantasy and i kind of like that about lovecraft where the horror actually like moves into this different genre this different realm
1: yeah Yeah, because he's he's trying to scare you like existentially mm -hmm. or something right it's not Mm -hmm. it's not yeah it's not jump scares by any means and i think it gets lost that that's but well not by everybody i mean yeah yeah
0: it's it's cosmic
1: common. horror right. um that's the
0: idea of cosmic horror but then right. like there's this other aspect of like he has these pieces that are actually like based on dreams and they're very like dreamy as well mm. and he yeah so he drew on those things are very reminiscent of like the whole like end of the 19th century like occultic revival right
1: too yeah, uh, so you might like those stories. Yeah, I want to check those out. I have not read the the Dream Cycle of H.P. Lovecraft. You called. You said right. Yeah, yeah. I have not. I have not made my way to that one yet. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Borges then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I'm sure. I, I think I've seen you tweet about him. Uh, he's the more time goes on. I've sort of had three, or I'm coming into my third. Um, trip with borges in life and i think that's appropriate i think he's a kind of writer that you can you kind of cycle back to um and uh, you just read you can just read all of the same stuff again and it's it's it looks different um he's just he's got these really strong there's these great sort of strong concepts that really infect your mind for a while there's the one that i've been thinking about the last few days because there's an aspect of it i want to maybe steal a little bit. Um, I think it's the what is it, the Zahir, the Zohir, something like that. Yeah, it's Z- the one, Zahir. Zahir, yeah, and it's the one where there's like this coin that people get completely, you get fixated on, right? And I just that that concept is fascinating to me that there can just be like a thing in which you are you cannot extract yourself from paying attention to it. It's mm-hmm. it's completely obsesses. And I, I know that there's been like, you know, I, it would be really easy for people to be like, well, that's like, just like your smartphones like that. Right. You can't st-. it's not really like that. This is like a, it, it, it's a, it's a concept that goes so deep that like it creates a, a sort of a, almost like a wound that can't heal. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's something very, there's something very disturbing about that to me like that that story is scarier to me than almost all horror that I have come across (laughs) you know uh it just struck me that some of my favorite
0: writers do one thing extremely well and that's uh the uncanny Mm -hmm. and you know you could like the superficial thing about Borges is how learned he is right um, which is definitely true, and yes. like, there's almost no competitor in this realm. Like Joyce, yeah. like a handful of people were right. as well read as Borges, right? Um, and and how like he's metafictional and postmodern, yeah. but he, at his best, like just nails the the feeling of the uncanny, yes, and merges that with his you know his knowledge and and his his metafiction and so on. Yeah. Um, Pinchon is able to do it in certain aspects as well um there's like in the crying of lot 49 where um they're going through the stamp collection and there's a stamp of like the the discovery of america is revealed and everybody has like shocked horrified oh, right. faces Right, it's such a weird <laughs> moment and like right. all these like altered stamps right right and it has that like uncanny feeling there's multiple elements of that in early
1: Pinchon. yeah yeah but anyway yeah yeah no that's that's very true and yeah and, and boris is doing. and you know you could name uh Funus the memorius is very is, <clears throat> has a quality of <clears throat> excuse me has a quality like that too many of the i was gonna say many of the short pieces every almost everything he wrote was a short piece so mm-hmm. <clears throat> but they're they're like um they're like uh they're like twilight they're like super literary twilight zone episodes right mm-hmm. <laughs> but they, they they have a conceit that, that that is self-contained and 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 well-structured like a twilight zone episode right yeah
0: okay so i'm gonna well, let's end on uh someone that i i definitely know you like and that's oh. mccarthy
1: oh yeah yeah oh so yeah obviously brilliant guy i had the good fortune of getting to look at some of his um he has, uh, his archive is at the, you know, um, it's not the university of Texas. It's the one that's Texas state, I guess, down in San Marcos. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to spend a couple days looking over, um, his like handwritten notes and things like that. Um, uh, specifically around blood Meridian was where I kind of spent my time. Um, yeah, I think blood Meridian is like, I, I think, you know, it stands up next to Moby Dick or anything else in terms of American letters. I think it's, uh, it, it speaks right down into like the American psyche. Uh, I don't know, you know, my disappointment is that, like I was talking earlier, my disappointment is that I'm never going to get to read that book again for the first time. Right. Uh, Yeah. And I probably won't, I don't know that I'm going to come across something else that hits me the same way. So yeah, it's, it's, and a lot of his other stuff is great too. It's just that blood meridian is, as good as anything anybody's ever written in my opinion. Great. Well, um,
0: let's go to the final question. Okay. Uh, Once again, uh, thanks for for doing this and for, yeah. thanks for having me, man. This is, this has been cool. Yeah. So the last question is uh, please white pill me. What is the best reason for optimism
1: about the future of art and culture today? Oh, what's the best reason? I think, I think, I think the human spirit is stronger than we think. I think that there's a lot of division right now and things are looking bad. And I think, you know, there's even an argument that like something like the United States isn't even going to exist in a hundred years. And that could all be true. But I think the human spirit is like an indomitable force. And I think it will always be trying to figure itself out so even if everything turns into crass poppy cheap um, sold out crap I think there will always be an undercurrent and I think that the genuine authentic uh, artistic production and cultural output uh, will always be there and will always try to come back I don't think you can actually get rid of it I think actually the harder forces try to get rid of it the more it's going to survive it's like coyotes it's like you can't get rid of it. So, so I think I think that's the reason to be optimistic. It's like it's it's unkillable. Yeah, it's invulnerable. I agree.
0: Yeah, uh, I could I could not agree more with that. Yeah. So, um, everybody, buy House of Sleep. Yes. Listen, oh, listen,
1: Heart. listen to Heart of Darkness, please.
0: Yes, uh, <laughs> and go to Bradkellyesque.com. Cool stuff there too. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, man. All right. Uh, yeah. Thanks again for talking to me. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Bye. Bye.